0: A quick thank you to the T5 peeps, Bob the Dragon, Data Magnet, Cat Crab Lobster, Dark Machine, Estrella the Dreamer, Mesic, Feudic and Caspar Arnholz. Thank you very much. Greetings ladies and metal gents, and welcome to the podcast version of Tales, Tales from, from Outer, from outer space. space. This episode will contain t 1,150 to 1,163. Tales from Outer Space 1,150. Story number one. Humanity lived on. Written by CT-24601. Tell us again, uncle. Tell us again of the stories of your planet. The old man chuckled. He sank his body, weathered by time and gravity and now disease, deeper into the seat that had claimed him. It had never been designed for him, and even now it was strange to see him there. Dwarf by the curved back and unable to position his feet. Yet, there was not a man, woman, or child in the village who would question that it was his. Very well, the man said, He smiled, displaying both weariness and excitement. Which would you like to hear? Tell like us about Washington, the boy shouted towards the front, his antennae twitching excitedly. No, oh, do Icarus, Gagarin. The children clamored, shouting over each other as their voices filled the crowded hall. Even a few of the adults chimed in, calling from where they lined the back wall. Stories of the heroes and villains, great adventurers to tragedies, and the human knew them all. Even tales of their own veneral ancestors, great men and women of the village, who the old man had outlived by generations. Harry Villager had a favorite story from the first human legends to the great battles of the Soul War, and they all sought to have theirs told. Yet, there was one cry that rose above the others, Tell us a new story. The chorus of ascent rose from the villagers. A new story was rare, even though the old man had enough to last a lifetime. Perhaps, this would be one of the nights that a new story was told, when a new legend entered the villagers' cannon. The old man shifted in his seat. ''Very well,'' he sighed. ''There is a story that none of you have heard. This is the story of a man named Le- Alexey. A chorus of excitement murmurs were quickly silenced as the man began his tale. ''When the humans first made contact with another race, we were ecstatic. We had yearned so long to not be alone in the universe.'' It was only natural that we embraced our fellow travelers with joy and wonder. We spread across the galaxy, sharing and learning with all we found. But not everyone wanted to share. There were those who would fight and kill and take, rather than cooperate. And so we met them in the Thousand Battles. They had heard this part before. Of course, they knew the battles of Rigel and Betelgeuse. When human ships triumphed through wit and ingenuity, and the new of Sirius and Vega, when a few hundred humans sacrificed themselves for the sake of their fellows. Yet what followed came as a shock to all. But more of humanity's efforts were not enough. Our attackers were too numerous, too determined, and they wiped us out on every colony until they reached Earth. And then, uh, I destroy that, too. The mood in the room had shifted abruptly. Even when the man told tales of tragedy, they ended on a heroic note, of sacrifice or bravery in death, and he told them with a grand, adventurous nature. Now, pain contorted his features as he spoke. The villagers waited with bated breath in all of his stories from the war. The old man had never spoken of its conclusion. They'd all assumed the humans had won. After all, the man was here, was it he? The last ship, scattered and disorganized, and still the enemy was not satisfied. They chased down every ship, every refugee that they could fight, determined to wipe out every last human in the galaxy. One of the last ships to fall was a merchant ship called the Herbies. They'd been out on the frontier when the war started, and they'd been able to hide for the first few years. This ship was the ship Alexei served on, and eventually the war caught up to them. The enemy attacked TOI-700. The battle was over before it started. Hermes had no weapons and minimal armor. When the enemy began boarding, to make sure every single member of the crew was killed, Alexei knew what he had to do. Most of the crew had been killed in the battle, but Alexei and a friend were still alive. The friend had been knocked unconscious, though, and the enemy was closing in on them. So Alexei did one of the bravest things a human has ever done. Tears streamed openly down the man's face. The villagers sat in stunned silence, wondering who could be braver than Achilles or Tankman? Alexei ran the ship's last working shuttle, pointed it towards the nearest habitable planet, and put his friend aboard. He ran back to the bridge and launched the shuttle remotely. And steering the crippled ship on his own, he positioned the Hermes between the shuttle and the enemy, blocking their sensors long enough for the shuttle to escape undetected. The video of his execution was played across the galaxy. The enemy declared that humanity, at last, had been eliminated. It wasn't true, of course, but what was left of us were too scattered to ever rebuild or reproduce. The enemy one, The man stopped speaking. The villagers, even the children, watched silently as he slowly raised himself from his seat and hobbled out of the hall. The mandibles began to twitch with grief. The wordless clack clacking filled the hall, the gravitas of the extinction overcoming the village. The old man died that night. The villagers found him in the morning, taken by disease after outliving three generations of Federal. In his small trunk they found a tattered uniform, Hermes neatly stitched above the left breast. They mourned him as one of their own, the eldest amongst them told the stories that the grandparents had told of the man who had come from a comet. One told the time that they had been lost in the forest overnight, and the man had shown her how to make a fire with wood alone. Another of how a man had faced down a group of marauders alone while the villagers sought cover. And for generations to come, the village told stories not just of the man, but the stories that he had told them, They told stories of Icarus and Washington and Gagarin and Alexei. They grew from children who played at sacrifice and heroism, stealing names from old man's stories into heroes, ready to sacrifice themselves for the sake of the village. And in a tiny, forgotten corner of the galaxy, long after the humans became extinct, the man was not forgotten. Alexei was not forgotten. And humanity lived on. End of story. Story number two. Manalians First Halloween. Written by Redshift Razor. Jeremy, I wasn't aware you humans had such a wide variety of supernatural creatures to be concerned about. What exactly do you mean, Blue? Well, uh, I was doing my research on human culture and found that it'll soon be the night of uh, Halloween. Ah, that's what you're concerned about. It's nothing major, just an opportunity for the kids' costumes and gratuitous amounts of sugar. Do you have something similar on your world? In the past, we had appeasement rituals for these types of creatures, yet uh, this stopped during our industrial age when we wiped these customs and creatures out. Aw, that sounds like no fun. uh. You guys should celebrate Halloween as well. Celebrate? Is it not your version of an appeasement ceremony? Huh? Well, else would you offer them all this confectionery, if not appeasement? Blue, I think you're misunderstanding something. The supernatural creatures you see are nothing more than people in costumes. Blue put his hand on his chin in a contemplative pose, which only perplexed Jeremy. What are you thinking about, Blue? You say that Halloween isn't an appeasement ceremony and that these supernatural creatures don't exist. Yet, I don't think that that's the case. Why not, Blue? Because last night I encountered what I know is a vampire in a duel with a human in a back alley near a food plaza. Stop joking, dude. What's the real reason? No, I'm completely serious, Jeremy. The vampire left onto the human who had dropped a wooden pointy stick. He screamed at me to help him, and being unsure what to do, I picked up the stick and stabbed him. What? You didn't want- what if you killed him? I know you humans are hardy, so I didn't really consider it at the time. And besides, I did kill him. He turned into ash and dust immediately after I stabbed him. This is one of your jokes, isn't it? No, I'm being completely serious. Once he turned into dust, the human on the ground thanked me profusely. He called himself, um, Van Helsing Jr., I believe. And I have the CCTV recording if you wish to see it. You know what? I'll take you up on that. Ten minutes later, Jeremy was standing still in the corner, contemplating the world-shattering video he'd just seen. He had checked, double-checked, and triple-checked the video to see if it was edited, but it was completely genuine. Blue had really killed a vampire with a stake to the heart. Oh, and Jeremy... Yes, Blue... Van Helsing Jr. is offering us 10 million credits to delete the video and never tell anyone of what we've seen. You down? Sure, man. Uh, We could use the 10 million. Okay, then. Happy Halloween, Jeremy. Happy Halloween, Blue. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1151 Translation Problems Written by Infernalism Strictly speaking, the planet's defenses were next to nothing. They had some orbital defense satellites, but those were turned around and had to do a 180-degree shift before they could be a threat. And the Conclave ships made quick work of them before they could do that. Aside from that, there were some monitoring satellites in orbit, and that was about it. Too easy, he thought with a bit of satisfaction. First Commander Stalak had executed some degree of difficulty to this mission, but thus far, it had been something a first-year stalker could have done without issue. His subordinates reported that there were half a dozen small cities on the planet, roughly 50,000 sentients in total. He ordered his men to lock weapons on the cities, but not fire until and unless he gave the word. Others were ordered to begin hacking into the planet's data net, before he headed down to the hangar to his personal shuttle. He had a meeting, and he didn't want to be late. William Nelson woke to the sound of explosions. Far-distance explosions and bright flashes of light in the early morning sky, far up in the atmosphere. The defensive grid, he surmised, slowly after a very long minute. He was foggy, but not from sleep. Bad, It had made hunting harder. But good, and it meant that he didn't remember much. That was very good. He became aware of another presence, another shuffling figure. Mary. Yeah, his daughter. Go back to bed. I'll go check on it. He had no reply from the little gangly limbed thing, just a mild neutral sound, and she shuffled back off, yawning and falling back into the bed in the other room. He was nearly dressed when he heard the sound of a ship approaching stepping out into the dust storm that rose up around him as the alien craft landed about a hundred feet away, just outside the warden building. Weapons. Weapons fire. He knew that sound from when he'd been in the military. Short, hot sounds, like silk being ripped. Plasma weapons set to kill. He knew he shouldn't get closer. But there he was, on the same. Bodies on the ground. Men being killed. Larger figures in armor, rough guttural sounds from helmeted heads. The gods were talking, yelling, fearful, but killed all the same. He recognized it when the aliens turned on him, turned their weapons on him, but he stood there like a lump. Whatever the reason, their weapons turned away and they scattered into the complex, looking for others to kill. Not him, for whatever reason, but Others. He knew that was relevant, obviously, but he couldn't figure out why he'd been spared. The largest amongst them stepped forward, a strange-looking thing, taller than him by a foot, and he wasn't small. Bulky, mainly in the upper chest area, then the legs, and they bent backwards, ending in boots that looked like hooves, not feet. Odd. The thing was talking at him in a strange tongue for a few seconds, before chuffing strangely, and then words started making sense. I apologize, human. I forgot to engage the translator before I started speaking. Human words, strangely accentuated, and the thing was taking off its oversized helmet. Horns, jagged and pointed and chaotically formed, branching out in a strange pattern over the being's head. No <sighs> Four eyes, two pairs, with one over each other, yellow as the sun, big teeth and a big shark's grin. Wasn't that a sign of aggression in most species? Stalic stared at the dumbfounded or just dumb human, standing before him for another few seconds, waiting for some kind of response before his eyes fell to the collar and he cursed to himself, and then out loud, "Bah, Barbaric! Reaching down to one of the dead soldiers, He pulled the dead body up with one hand and activated its wrist computer. With the other, he drew a few clicks. William's collar peeped three times and then fell off of his neck. There, that should make things a little easier. I was putting it lightly. In moments, William began to really think again for the first time in, well, a really long time. The sun seemed brighter, the forests around were greener, the bugs were louder, and the blood on the ground was much more crimson than a few moments ago. The grey world fell away, and a big alien hand fell onto his shoulder. Let's go inside and talk. Thirty minutes later, Stella could not believe that he was talking to the same dull-eyed simpleton that had walked up into his firefight. This human was sharp-eyed and quiet, but a true sense of intellect about him. Bill, he was called and he was listening intently to the conclave soldier's story with great interest. A hundred species? A hundred peoples, yes. A real peoples, not prey species. We call ourselves the Conclave. The real name is beyond the human tongue, but that's as close as we can get. We have some trouble still with your language. And Earth refused to offer to join because you wage war on these prey species. The huge soldier chucked again. A kind of laughter balsamized. They loudly refused with a great self-righteousness and indignation. That sounds like Earth a right. They shared some laughter, then. Bill was incredibly at ease here, and his tone oozed with interest and curiosity. Stanek could only shake his head. Hell, they could lock this man up. He could not understand. What was your crime, Belle? Bill? Bill uh, and I hurt people. I was in the military. We're all here because we hurt people. Because you're a person and that's what people do, Stalak nodded his head, understanding completely. We are also condemned for the same thing. We are not prey animals. So, um, you're at war with Earth now. Earth and about six other empires are pacifistic, bleating animals. They send envoys and ambassadors and peace offerings. Earth at least is fighting back. We keep offering admission and they keep refusing. Perhaps after they'd lose a few colony worlds, they'll reconsider. And you're here. Why, out of some errand of mercy. I brought a grated chuffing and a slap of a big booming hand onto a warden from a warden's desk. The warden and the rest of the guards, all dead, were being burned outside with a great pomp and ritual while a hundred college humans stood dumbly around and watched without quite understanding what was going on. But watching intently... All the same no human we wish to have you join us to fight our own kind even with bulls measured tongues, there was a heavy hint of disbelief here no again to fight other species we could not ask you to fight your own kind mostly because we do not truly trust you yet but perhaps in the future perhaps so we'd be your uh, mercenaries not a sort you'd be probationary members of the conclave After a few years, you'd be granted full citizenship. The rights to settle your own will, even control over Earth worlds that we conquer. They would accede to your rule before that of an alien, I suspect. Bill made appropriate noises here, but did not agree. All world, just us. Seems a bit unnecessary. The great horn being clicked buttons, scrolling through pages of data on the ex-warden's computer. Yes, for just yourselves... But we found that Earth humans have five prison worlds in the sector all clumped up, all close to one another. We suspect for reasons of security. In total, there are 200,000 of your people in the sector that would qualify you for a world of your own. He clicked off the console and turned his full attention to the human. So, I hope you're not going to refuse our offer of service to the Conclave. I thank like you. I think your people would much rather bleed others than be bled. You would be correct, First Commander. So, um, you can speak for them, the rest are your people here? Bill had to shake his head. No. He had to take a deep breath and then continued. I need you to give us about a week, alone, turn the collars off, all of them, and give us about a week to talk it over. Bill, you have to understand, this is an all or nothing offer. We need your people in force, not a handful of people and a lot of food animals waiting to be slaughtered. He didn't want to have to slaughter these beings that acted very much like his own people. But he couldn't have a week amongst them. It weakened the whole. Give me a week without the collars dulling our minds and I promise you, you'll get what you came for. First Commander Stelic thought for a moment, mostly for show, and then agreed. He and his soldiers would pull back for a week and merely monitor the surface for any sort of obvious treachery or civil dissension. These sorts of things always resulted in a handful refusing to get their hands dirty again, and he wanted to see how these humans reacted to the self-righteous refusal. The first three days were just them waking up from their collar induced haze. Then things happened quickly. The five cities that existed all congregated at the central city. The entire population came. On the fourth day, a ground-based signal was intercepted by the conclave. Bill wanted to get access to the ship's database on the conclave species and history. Stanek gleefully approved it. This was looking very good. On the fifth day, ship-mounted cameras caught video of the masses of humans all gathered up, talking to each other, perhaps debating and perhaps going over the finer details of different things on their data pads. But the sixth day, the crowd broke up again and returned to their town's Stelek received another message from the surface from Bill. Stanek watched in great satisfaction as the humans burned their homes and cities and returned to the central location. On the morning of the seventh day, Stanek returned to the surface with the entirety of his forces, leaving the ships on autopilot and defense. He wanted all his men there as they inducted a new people into the conclave. Probationary, of course, but it was still a momentous day, an almost holy day. Stenek would be remembered for this day for the rest of the history of the Conclave. His people mingled with theirs even as he walked amicably into the Warden's building. He was delighted to see humans and Conclave sharing food and talking, examining weapons and armor, no doubt asking where they got theirs. He was almost giddy with delight. The blade slipped between the plates of armor on the right into his spine Perfectly splitting the cord of nerves that ran from his head to his legs. Stalek made a noise and collapsed on the spot. There was no pain. Built in medical systems were trying to kick in, but Bill was busy at the Conclave Leader's wrist computer, shutting down all systems with a few clicks. Then the human straddled his chest, still holding the blade that had crippled him. Snellek, I need the code to your ship's security systems. The Conclave's warriors responded in his own tongue with a long string of undoubtedly uncivilized comments on that idea. Bull just tapped the blade on the center of the warrior's deactivated chest armor. Stalek, we're going to get into the system whether you help us or not. This is just me giving you a chance to earn yourself a quick death. Not once since he'd been attacked by this human had Bull changed his amicable and easy tone. No was surreal. We came to give you freedom, human, and you seek to betray us. For those soft Earth humans, you are pathetic and truly human after all. You came to get a new army, and yes, we are betraying you. And but not for us. His own wrist computer peeped twice, and a small, tiny voice squeaked out, "Marin." Boom made a tisking sound at the sound and climbed off the paralyzed stack. I'm guessing you already set up the probationary membership database on your ship. I'm also guessing we'll find the location of the other worlds in the sector. I'm betting we'll be able to figure out how to add them to the probationary database as well. He sheathed his own blade and another figure entered the room quietly. Bill just greeted her with a hand on her shoulder. You need help with the armor, Mary. There's such a tiny thing she was, half the size of the silent conclave soldier out her feet. No, Dad. I read the specs, and she didn't need his blade, Stelic numbly realized. She had her own. Clean up when you're done and meet me at the ship. we got more work to do. Bull hurried outside, and he had his own fun waiting for him. A little bit to tide him over until they could get out into the big bad old galaxy again. The little wisp of a girl left the warden's office about an hour later, soaked to the bone in something that looked like blood but was slightly more of a greenish-brown. She met her adopted father, who was just as soaked and they cleaned up in one of the guard buildings, stepping around crowds of crouched men who hovered over screaming things in the dirt. As Bill had suspected, the ships had more than enough room for them, and for the other peoples on the other worlds as well. Stellick had come looking for an army. He had already requisitioned the armor and weapons, and luckily, the Conclave had 16 other species that were roughly human-sized, complete with head-to-toe body armor. Bill and his people changed databases here and there, and even as the truth of Stalic's efforts was discovered by the Conclave's leadership, Bill's people were already filtering into the masses of armies that made up the vast whole of the Conclave society. As was their wont, his people broke up almost immediately, spreading out to find their own hunting grounds, staking out territory to thin the ranks, not because of patriotic duty or because human loyalty, because that's what they did. Stelec's translators were as bad as he had joked about. It would, perhaps, be the costliest of mistakes to use the second-rate translator that couldn't tell the difference between prison world and hospital world. Both people never hurt another human for the rest of their storied existence, even as the Conclave began to collapse in on itself due to the piles of murders that came from within and could not be solved. Boogeymen in the dark that turned species against species. Bill's people had no reason or desire to go after and hunt humans again, for the species of the Conclave were ever so much more enjoyable of a hunt. They were faster, smarter, stronger, and bigger. They were the predators of the galaxy. And Bull's people sated themselves on those predators. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1152 Newcomer written by I.R. Good at Writing The furry hexapod collapsed in a pit to the sound of a ringing bell. Morbin two brains let out a rapturous shout and smashed these balls together in joy. The gas cloud next to him turned into a furious red as more of its gambling credits transferred into Morbin's account. <laughs> you see, Wanderer, that's why you never get bet against the hardskins. He would have slapped the wanderer's back of his paw, wouldn't pass through its form. A part of the cloud wished over to Morbin's head. It was the hexapod's idiocy that got him killed, not Krowl's skill. Wanderer's form changed color to violet. The color of uncertainty. Morbin swanted his paws around his ears and face until he couldn't hear Wanderer's voice in his head anymore. Ah, it's hilarious when you try and lie to yourself. What was that, fifth Vithwin? Wanderer went from violet to a light pink in annoyance. The pair looked up the screen hovering above the pent. A flat line next to the defeated fighter's name was displayed along with a lengthy list of physical traumas Krowl gave it during the fight. Medical bots swarmed the area around the hexapod's body. Krowl stood there on the other side of the arena, laughing and cleaning off his sore arms with the manipulator arms below them. Each bot revealed a dozen different medical instruments from their forms and closed in around the hexapod. The list of injuries on the screen drained to nothing within minutes. A bot landed on the dead combatant's chest and released a burst of electricity. The fighter jumped back to life and landed on all six of its legs. The line on the screen returned to a regular heart rate and the audience cheered again. Growl mocked the defeated combatant's honor and strength to the enjoyment of the audience. It made a rude gesture to Growl and galloped out of the pit like it hadn't died moments ago. Medical bots flew away, and an aquatic alien half the size of the morbid's tail hovered at the center of the pit. A microphone was lowered into the floating fishbowl from somewhere in the ceiling. Now that was a fight to remember, the alien announced in a booming voice, and it has lasted an amazing 73 seconds. It angled its fishbowls towards Kral. That was your fifth victory in a row, and you're still in the pit? There is no shame in taking a break after a performance like that. Are you sure you want more? Browl pounded his seven-foot armored form and spat at the floating fish. I am just warming up. He clicked his mandibles in anticipation. Oh, what? The fish laughed. Let's see if you can break them up against your next opponent. The lights in the pit darkened. Only the announcer inside the fishbowl was illuminated. Honorable guests of the pit, I have a treat for you all. A new species of mammals wished to make a name for themselves in the arena. Hailing from the temperate planet Earth, please give a warm welcome to their representative, the fierce, the terrible, the unstoppable, Bob. The crowd's cheering turned to laughter when the challenger entered the pit. A small, hairless creature jogged towards the center, wearing a blue flag with seven white interlocked circles and in the middle as a cape. It was a bipedal-like crow, but only had two arms and no sores. The screen above the pit said that it was a male and an omnivore, along with some other general facts. "'Where's its claws? How's sharp teeth? He's not even hard skin. Morbin wondered aloud. "'You wanna give me some more money, Wanderer? Why not bet on that softy?' He gonfled and slammed his paw against the raining until the Wanderer entered his head again. I'll take that bet. Two hundred credits to earn back all that I have lost. But The glass cloud turned like green in confidence. There's a friend I'm telling you to stop while you're ahead. No, the Illuminator Beyond grants me luck this time. I can feel it. Mondra left Morbin's head and became one cloud again. You said that last time. Ugh, whatever, they're your credits. The dark-skinned short thing reached the middle of the arena. It revealed its white omnivorous teeth and waved to the crowd. Half the audience almost doubled over in laughter. Look at it! It thinks we're cheering for it! Morbin wheezed. Mondra stayed a neutral white in contemplation. A utility bot swung down into the pit next to the challenger, folding its flag, and pulled out two shiny red pillows. Confusion swept the crowd until the thing put them on his hands and had the bot tie them in its wrists. Laughter threatened to bring down the entire arena. Even Crowell had to use the two manipulator arms to support just to keep himself from falling over in mirth. (laughs) (laughs) What are you going to do? Crowl said between breaths, <laughs> bu- bu- Put me to sleep with those things. Bob's smile faded. Yes. Crowl approached the thing in the middle and loomed over it. His black exoskeleton was covered in a colorful markings from the top of his head to his forked feet, each representing a commendation earned in combat. The hairless challenger raised his gloves to his chest height and paled them there. He looked at Crowl expecting him to do the same with his manipulator arms. Growl responded by swinging a sore arm towards his face. Bob ducked back with surprising speed. Growl laughed and clicked his mandibles, each opponent circling the other, looking for weak spots. Growl determined his longer reach would beat Bob's speed and charged in, sore arms held at the ready. The edges were inches from Bob's face when he ducked out of the way again. This time, he rocketed a punch towards Growl's abdomen, There was an audible crunch as the audience gasped. Morbin instinctively reached for Wanderer in fear, and his paws met the air. Kral screeched in pain and spun to face the challenger. Tiny fractures walked away from the clear dent that the glove had made in Kral's armor. It's nothing! He roared to the crowd and pounded his chest with a sore arm. Bob stood hunched over on the other end of the pit, gloves raised to his face. Kral got down into a crutch, his manipulator arm supporting his two legs. The fighters approached each other again, ducking and weaving. Bob attempted to close in for another strike to the abdomen, only to have a serrated arm slammed down onto him. Red blood spilled onto the pit floor. A cry echoed throughout the arena, and it wasn't from Kral this time. Bob pulled away from his opponent. His left arm became visible to Morbin. A deep gash was cut into his fleshy forearm penetrating deep enough to expose bone. Everyone in the crowd with lungs held their breaths, expecting the outmatched challenger to collapse any second. Bob gritted his teeth and approached Krell again. Does he not know he's injured? Morbin said. Bob towed the line between safety and striking distance, daring Krell to strike. Growing impatient, Krell lunged forward with both arms aimed at the challenger's neck. He ducked under the decapitating blow and swung at the dent in the armor. His glove bounced harmlessly off the opponent's chest armor. Kral angled one of his arms mid-swing, giving Bob another slice along the back before ducking back to safety. Now that Kral was supporting himself with his manipulator arms, the dent was at too shallow of an angle for the challenger of Earth to exploit. Morgan glanced at the timer above the pits. Two minutes and thirty-six seconds. How are either of them standing, he thought to himself. You always know who the winner is in the first thirty seconds. It looked like Crow was thinking the same thing. His manipulator arms wobbled under the weight of the rest of his body, and his antennae drooped in exhaustion. The ground shook as he gave a bestial roar. With a new burst of speed, he moved towards Bob, swinging his arms left, right, up, and down. Bob dodged and ducked each strike, never quite able to reach back in return. Tiredness set in. Crowl was forced to lower one sore arm to the ground to support himself. That's when the challenger made his move, dancing into striking range the challenger pulled back his right glove for a strike. Realizing the danger he was in, Crowl raised his free arm to cut down his opponent. Bob's glove connected with Crowl's chin, making a crack so loud even the viewers from the highest seats could hear it his arms ready to strike a moment ago. fell limp to the ground. The rest of his body followed with it. Slack-jawed aliens of all races stared in silence. Bells rang after what seemed like an eternity. The sound broke everyone from their trances, and the crowd erupted in a genuine cheer. Wanderers shone a radiant blue and display of pride. Even Morbin, who lost all the credits he earned that night, Wouldn't find it in himself to be upset. He looked up at the screen. The fight ended after three minutes and twelve seconds. A clear record for the pit, and probably every other pit in the galactic sector. His eyes drifted to Krell's medical status. He was alive, but his exoskeleton was broken at the jaw and abdomen. Medical bots swarmed the pit, surrounding Krell and Bob. Both their injuries were healed in less than a minute. Krell opened his eyes and rose from the ground, his usual bravado gone. He hung his head, waiting for Bob to insult his honor and make a mockery of him. Bob approached the opponent, observing his deflated form. Good fight. He tossed his glove at the pot and left the pit. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1153 Packing for his trip. Written by Old Cypher, the belt rattled as it hit the inside of his suitcase. Jerry kept his head buried in the closet, picking out which things to take with him and which to leave for now. The picture window in his room cycled through a handful of views, mountains, oceans, forests, before settling on a river rolling gently through the prairie. I don't understand why you're doing this, Hart asked from the bed. His forward paws were propped up on the outside of the suitcase, and his fluffy tail swept slow, lazy semicircles behind him. He glanced at the picture window, then ignored it. He hated the river view. It's, uh, j- just a treatment, Jerry said, his voice muffled by the clothes hanging in the closet. There's really nothing to worry about. He flipped through the hangers, looking for the one thing that he knew was there, but couldn't find. Man, I'm not worried, Scott said. Not exactly, anyway. It's more like, um, confusion, maybe? There's no anxiety, just, uh, curiosity. Jerry stepped out of the closet, holding two shirts and glancing between them. We talked about this, he said, tossing one shirt towards the suitcase and handing the other back into the closet. I'm going to the Robertson station for a course of genetic modifications. I'll only be gone a couple weeks, and Mrs. Jiang said that you can stay with her while I'm gone. Mrs. Jang is our blind, God said, but she is nice. The part I don't understand is the genetic modifications you're talking about. What are those? Why do you need them? Jerry stopped picking out the clothes and sat on the bed, half-turned to God. So inside every living thing is a blueprint of what makes them. A blueprint is called DNA. Jerry, God said, just because my people never discovered hyperdrive doesn't mean that we're complete idiots. I know what DNA is and RNA, and genes, and the rest of it. I wasn't confused in the science, just the motivation. Oh, Jerry said. Sorry, um, it's just that, well, uh, you look like the pets we keep back on Earth, and it's easy to forget that you're not a puppy or a kitten. Yeah, Cot said. You have a lot of talking puppies and kittens back on Earth. We do not. I know, Cot said, as we've talked about. Now why are you getting this gene therapy done? And why do you have to go a dozen light-years to get it?" "'Well,' Jerry said, "'Robertson Station is the closest place that you can do this. Our medical facilities here are good for patching you up if you get hurt. But if you need a specialty work, you have to go to Robertson. These, um, gene therapy is one of those things.' "'Fair enough,' God said. "'But why?' Because this new treatment is meant to help humans survive better in deep space or extended periods in alien environments, Jerry said. What's that mean, survive better? You people are already God's perfect killing machines, God said. Why would you need an upgrade? It's, um, it's not really an upgrade, Jerry said. Over time, little changes add up. Too little gravity on our bones get too weak. Too much gravity and our hearts give out. Too little or too much oxygen causes our problems. Same with all kinds of trace minerals in our food. These treatments are meant to make us a little more resilient to these sorts of things. I was selected as one of the early adopters out here at the edge of settled space. You mean human settled space, Cod said. Well, yeah, Jerry said. What did you mean by where are God's for killers a minute ago? You are, Cod said. Remember the melody, Humans wiped them out in under thirty years. That was a war. Jerry said. "'Bad things happen in war. We tried to peacefully resolve it, but the vanity wouldn't negotiate. It's terrible, but what happened to them, but, uh, that was them or us.' "'What happened to them? You happened to them,' Khan said. "'It wasn't some random stroke of luck or errant asteroid or supernova. It was humans, and yes, it was a war, and yes, bad things happen in war. But you still exterminated them.' We also freed multiple planets that they had subjugated, Jerry said. I'm not denying that good came of it, Card said. Oh, that you weren't right to do it. What I am saying is that you killed the race of killers, and that's not the only one. You're not going to bring up the Fedge again, are you? Humanity has apologized for that over and over. We spent trillions trying to make that right. Uh, It was an accident, Jerry said. I believe you, Card said. And I know humanity feels terrible about it, but it doesn't change the fact that you almost wiped out an entire race before you knew anything about them. Your people are such good killers, you commit genocide accidentally. That's hardly fair, Jerry said. Alien biology is tricky, and as soon as we realized what was happening, we tried to fix it as quickly as possible. Sure, sure, Cod said. Besides, every species stumbles a little when they first get out into the wider galaxy. Jerry said. What about the Antla? They didn't know the Kaxa were intelligent, and all the Antla saw were a bunch of shiny crystals, and they took a few home for souvenirs. A few, yes, Cart said. Not the entire species. But if you want to say that everyone stumbles, then let's talk about your homeworld. You're still the most lethal species known in the galactic immunity at large. You've never been to Earth, Jerry said. No, Cart said. But this outpost of yours has thousands, maybe millions, of shows and articles and books about your homeworld. Earth may be the most overdocumented planet in the galaxy. I've been watching those shows, you are, by far, the deadliest species on Earth. What about sharks? Jerry asked. Ten meters long, row after row of teeth, never sleeps, can smell a drop of blood a mile away underwater, and can tear a man apart in seconds. That's your counter-argument, that there's a creature in your homeworld that lives in an environment that you are completely unsuited to, evolved to never come into contact with you, might be able to take out a human one-on-one. Tell me, how many species of sharks are there? I don't know, Jerry said. How many did there used to be? Jerry paused for a moment. Uh, More? That's right, Cod said, because your people killed them. Only some of them, Jerry said. Some were on accident, but they're mostly protected species now, I think. Uh-huh, God said. But it's not just sharks that are better than people. Bears, bears are pretty mean. They're land animals too. Wolverines and honey badgers are pretty badass. And there's snakes and spiders. Some of them can kill a man with one bite. Rattlesnakes and cobras are nasty. A handful of animals, many of whom you've pushed the edge of extinction. Well, let me ask you one thing, if you, meaning humans as a whole, if you decide to wipe out every snake and spider from Earth, could you do it? Oh yeah, absolutely, Jerry said. That's my point, Cart said. You wiped out who knows how many species without even trying. You've waged war against the most vicious species in the galaxy and won. How many wars have your own people fought amongst themselves? For all the data about Earth and its history, the files on humanity's walls are surprisingly thin. We know you've had several major wars, including nuclear, but the details are always glossed over. How many of your own people have you killed as a race? Uh, no idea. Billions, probably, Jerry said. That's why I called your people God's perfect killers, God said. You deal death as easily as you breathe. Then why did you agree to come here and live with me? Because you're not a bad people, God said. Well, not in the main... There are bad humans, just as there are badly behaved people of all species. You are friendly and curious and surprisingly accepting of those different from you. But you are still kinners, even when you don't mean to be. Most other species fear you, to some level at least. I had several friends of my own people tell me not to come here. They were worried that I'd end up dead before I'd even stepped off the transport. But I explained to them as I explained to you that humans aren't any more malicious than any other race. In fact, you may be more welcoming than most. It's just that humans are exceptionally good at killing. More so than any known race. You paint us as a pretty harsh light, Jerry said. Don't take it personally, Cart said. You can do no more change your nature than one of your sharks can. You are who you are. So, knowing all of this... I still have to ask why God's Perfect Killers need genetic upgrades to make them even more resilient. You know we don't see ourselves as that, Jerry said. A race of killers. We have killed, yes, but it's not what defines us. Killing is not a core human trait. Some would say curiosity is the core human trait. Or love, or hope. But never murder. I know, God said. No one sees themselves as others see them. That is the immutable law of nature for all races. This, um, gene therapy, Jerry said, it really just makes it easier for us to live in a wider variety of places. Oh, I'm sure it is, Kant said, but it'll also make it easier for you to fight in a wider variety of places. You have to remember that every advance your people make is seen as a possible threat to every other race in the galaxy. You tell me that you a non-military human with no particular claim to fame. No, I don't mean that harshly, but it's true. You tell me that you are getting genetic upgrades, and I have to think of the billions of killers of your race all receiving the same treatment. Should I uh, not go? I wouldn't say that, Cart said. Besides, if you didn't go, it's not like it would stop the project. They'd just find some other volunteer. Go, get your treatment. Mrs. Chiang and I will be here waiting for you when you get back. As long as she hasn't killed me by then. She, um, uh, she won't kill you, Cart, Jerry said. She's a sweet little old lady who makes dumplings when I'm sick. Still, she's a human, Cart said. That means I have to watch her. Always. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1154 Children in the Playground of Giants, written by Damascus Seraph The Galactic Council first discovered humanity in the early years of space colonization. Primitive FTL travel, barely fast enough to maintain a cohesive unified empire across the pitiful backwater planets. Their ships, laughably small, that like the first explorers who visited the humans thought they were personal ships or fighter craft. But when the first diplomats of the Council arrived in human space they were greatly surprised by what they saw. Unique beings, barely up to their knees in height, while walking under a gravity three or four times stronger than some of the mightiest of species in the council. And further, unlike every species in the council, they bred like rabbits and lived half as long. By the time the council had finalized the borders with the upstart humans, the previous diplomats had since aged into retirement, and their younger replacements fared no better when further discussions were made. Tithes were brought up, and the human diplomats had the gall to object, claiming independent sovereignty over their own space and resources. Merely a generation later, and the respect of the humans showed us turned to apathy, and another generation after that, apathy turned to indifference. Oh, how naive the humans seemed to be, so small in a galaxy of titanic life. Most of us even saw them as barely sentient. After all, how could a creature so small and short-lived manage to go into space? The only luck of cosmic dice. For it took half a human generation to simply explain to them how the Council of the First Five Species of the Galaxy demand tribute from the newer species. In exchange for technology and colonization rights, The council had even given them generous terms, including a minor population control and only an initial 70% tithe to the council. With a lower rate once the race is properly civilized. Though, when brought up, they would join the council as a vassal race to their nearest neighbor, and had no vote. The petulant humans then had the gall to deny our generous offer of joining the council, they even denied our traders access to their markets after their minded debacle about one of the council traders demanding compensation for lost goods. We would not let this insult go unpunished. And the Grand Council began drafting their plans to punish these unruly children and force them to respect their elders. For what are they but children in the playground of giants? By the time the great council's retribution fleet was mustered, plans were developed, logistics and supplies demanded from vassals of the council. Almost six human generations had gone by. It was nearly every other day the human ambassadors to the council grew greyer and greyer till they were replaced by younger, eager humans that quickly grayed themselves. None the wiser to our plans to finally discipline their childish race. Despite how obvious it seemed at the time when the representative or diplomat didn't realize the humans were in the room, but they seemed as simple as they looked. Unbeknownst to us, though, these humans spread like pests, multiplying exponentially faster than anyone could have dreamed. By the time the First Fleet entered human space, They've gone from barely space civilization, with a half-dozen planets under their control, with a half-starving population of their homeworld, to having dozens upon dozens of planets colonized. Some were barely considered habitable to the humans, and would barely be considered above mining outposts, only manned by drones due to their high gravity and thick atmospheres. And not only that, like pests, they were clever, they were not as dim as many deemed them so, and had known of the invasion years prior. Our fleet, upon leaving their dry docks, were immediately noticed, and by the time they reached Terrid Space, there only were abandoned outposts and stations to be found. The humans had at least the woods to run instead of fight. Our admirals assured our victory as they drove the dagger with less resistance than a plasma torch through parchment until the ships entered the system known as Alpha Centauri by the humans. The first official colony of humans and the first most developed of them besides their homeworld. The planet was in the middle of an evacuation. Yet, there were far too many humans to evacuate. The Gansel fleet quickly entered the planet's gravity, destroying the evacuation ships and pitiful minuscule ships that tried to defend them. Only then that the council fleet broadcast the punishment for the Terran's refusal to submit and bombarded the planet from orbit, broadcasting the destruction for the galaxy to see, both to terrify the humans and make sure the vassals knew the punishment should they get any ideas. The next destination was a small red dwarf known to the humans as Barnard's Star. A simple mining colony on a nearby barren world which was evacuated. One more jump and the fleet would be in the human's homeworld, ready to demand subjugation after a lengthy bombardment. But the system was not truly abandoned, for a massive fleet of Terran starships was orbiting the former mining colony. While the council fleet consisted of multiple dozen kilometer long ships that resembled Terran mushrooms, designed to face the enemy and absorb tremendous blows to the heavily-shielded and heavily-armored front. With 20 of these advanced battleships, one of each of the major members of the Council, and over 70 escort ships from the minor Council members and vassal states, designed to simply support the main warships and harass the enemy if retreating. But the usual tactics of the Council were tested when the captains of each battleship viewed the scanners and saw not enemy battleships ready to be destroyed, but a swarm of ships surrounded by a few hundred larger ships, barely the size of escorts. While well, this was unusual. the admirals were not concerned. even the larger ships could not withstand a single shot of their plasma cannons, and the smaller ships would be vaporized by the heat alone if they missed. This wouldn't be a battle, merely a slaughter. The first salver of the venerable plasma batteries came a few days after the ships entered the star system. The Terran fleet already steaming towards the fleet. Every shot was aimed at one of their larger vessels, and surprisingly most dodged out of the way. A few were hit and exploded in a very satisfying way, some taking a few of the miniature escort vessels that were too close. But total damage was less than hoped. And still, the Terrans flew closer, Despite the enormous display of force, they could destroy their best ships with glancing blows. They should have surrendered. How foolish. Once the Terran ships got close enough, still millions of miles away and only detectable on scanners, the Council fleet scanners began picking up hundreds, thousands of more contacts. Many of the younger officers were concerned for a fleeting moment before the scanners saw what they were. Nuclear missiles of various yields and construction. Many would not even detonate as they were built so shoddily, it seemed, as a child had assembled them. A single missile wouldn't have a dent in the shields, but a thousand could drain them to an uncomfortable level. And thus, the order was given to the escorts to search forward. Their point defense lasers designed to shoot down such pesky and nimble missiles that the battleships couldn't be bothered to deal with. As another salver of hot plasma raced through space, the Terrans dodged most of these as well, scoring naught but a few kills on the smallest and slowest ships. The maneuvers performed would kill any other trace of the Council. Even those that had engineered their bodies with machines would gawk at the maneuvers so casually performed by the Terran ships. Surely, their bones would be mulched by the G-forces. And yet again... The scan showed life signs of the ships that had performed even the most drastic of evasive manoeuvres to have no casualties. And by now, the missiles of the Terrans had come close enough to be shot at. The point-defense lasers of the escort ships lighting up the void, metaphorically as they were invisible to most sentient eyes, melting the payload of multiple warheads, the engines, the computer systems. But there were too many. Even as each escort shot down a dozen every few seconds, the swarm had gotten dangerously close. Even the battleship's own point defense degraded themselves by having to open fire. Then something strange happened. All the warheads fired out the missiles. Instead of having to deal with a few hundred remaining missiles, there were now a thousand or more active warheads flying into the void directly at the ship's. Despite the escort's best efforts, the first frontline escorts were hit, lighting up space as each ship was hit by a dozen warheads, one after the other. But the scanner showed that those warheads were deemed shoddily construction as to not detonate. Were merely fakes and designed to take shots for the real warheads to make. Ten escorts were annihilated by a barrage, their shields simply overloaded by the amount of firepower directed in multiple points of their shield, overloading them and allowing the rest of the warheads to detonate and melt the hulls to slag. This couldn't be. Normally, missiles were replaced with massive torpedoes centuries ago. A single massive payload armoured and shielded to be able to make its target and destroy its target in a single blow. But these Terran's had discovered accidentally, or not, that the shields of the council ships were weak to constant barrages. They were meant to deal with a single hard blows from a large caliber weapons at long range, and then recharge in time it takes for the enemy battleship to fire again, relying on focus fire to take another battleship down if one side did not surrender before their shields fully drained. The Admirals began ordering the ships to open fire fully, No more playing games with these Terrans that they were going to destroy them for daring to scratch the paint of the fleet, let alone destroy a few of their escorts. As the heavy plasma cannons once again fired, the Terrans were close enough that the medium-sized guns on the battleships opened up. Now casualties started to pile up on the Terran side, as they had much less time to maneuver to avoid the beams of plasma. Yet, an annoying number still dodged and avoided. Now unleash yet another salvo of missiles as the Terran fleet began to spread out in wider formation up and down to both sides of the fleet in a large C-shape. This time, the missiles specifically targeted the escorts, seeing them as the main threat to their barrages, and more exposed as they were in front of the mushroom-shaped battleships. See this, Many captains of the escorts began to panic and begin retreating towards the battle line, causing more of the escorts to begin to abandon their formation, turning and maximizing the engines hoping to outrun the missiles or simply avoid them. Turning off their comms as to avoid yelling from the council member admirals, ordering them back into line. Yet the cowardice was short-lived as a sudden decrease in point of fence fire allowed a majority of the missiles to strike true, detonating one ship after another, overwhelming their shields and allowing the next volley of warheads to reduce the ships to scrap metal. Barely seven escorts managed to get behind the battleships, which tanked the remaining missile barrage or shot down those they could, their shields flickering but easily holding out against the warheads. The fleet began to shift its formation, curling into a C-shape as the Terran ships began to go around the battle line and once again firing a barrage of missiles. Except this time, the larger ships of the fleet continued firing dozens upon dozens of missiles, each one scant and showed to be carrying a much heavier wad, nearly ten times as powerful as the ones used by the smaller ships. At that point, it became crystal clear what was going on. The smaller missiles were meant to overwhelm the shields and keep up the pressure, while the larger missiles would either put the final blow in the shields, allowing for the barrage to pepper the battleship's hull with nuclear fire, or detonate inside the battleship and take it out in one blow. The Admiral screamed orders to fire at will, though the crews need not have listened as they fired wildly into the swarm of ships and missiles multiple of the large ships having fallen after unleashing their barrage, and many more smaller ships destroyed as they attempted to swarm around the battle line. The crews watching as a massive wave of missiles got closer and closer on the scanners until they got close enough for the warheads to be released, quintupling the amount of contacts on the radars until they finally hit the shields. Cameras Overwhelmed by the amount of bright light as millions of tons of TNT were detonated in mere moments. Multiple warheads never made it, vaporized by the previous warheads that arrived seconds before they did. Technicians on the shield generators watched in horror as the reserve power for the shields dwindled rapidly with each detonation. And as more missiles came from behind... The weaker part of the shield as nobody expected any ships to actually get behind the battle line. The shield generators overheated, many failing outright from the strain. One even detonated, causing the ship to blow apart just as the massive megaton missiles strike the pride of the Council's fleet. The Council waited in anticipation after the communication contact ceased for the battle's beginning. Many are the representatives of the Elder Species and Vassal Species, simply conversing or placing bets on which ships would gain the most kills. When a single message arrived, not from the fleet, but from the Terrans, odd, perhaps this was an unconditional surrender. It contained a crude form of holographic display called a video file that was quickly opened up and shown to the entire council chamber. Pride beaming on the Elder Council members, awaiting the begging and the pleading of humans, only for the faces to turn into shock and horror. In front of their eyes was a recording of the Council fleet, or more uh, was left of it. Barely recognizable, most of the remaining superstructure was molten hot and melted into each other. But they were certain that it was the fleet. A taron flag waved in the front of the camera, with the words coming on the screen, Remember Alpha Centauri! which showed the Terran flag behind the planet that had received orbital bombardment. Before the shocked members of the Council could even process the information, another communication came. This time, from one of the Elder Species colonies, they were under attack by the Terrans. Ships destroyed the space stations in orbit with nuclear missiles and shot down any ships attempting to leave. Soon, more reports showed up on the Council computers, and even the personal communication devices of various representatives begging them to relay to the Council that they were under attack. The Council was in a frenzy attempting to organize another fleet to face the Terrans, scraping up every ship that they could muster to organize to take back the rapidly advancing Terran armadas Videos of Terran flags waving proudly over former vassal and the species' worlds demanding surrender. Some of the cities were unrecognizable, bombarded by orbit by humans' barbaric nuclear weapons due to them refusing to surrender. Then the warships attempted to regroup and organize were pounced on by the Terran raiding fleets. Lone ships were completely unprepared to deal with the nimble Terran ships and the escorts that came from vassal fleets never arrived, as many began to overthrow the yoke of their former masters, pledging allegiance to the Terrans as they entered space. Both out of spite for their overlords treating them so poorly, and out of fear of becoming yet another irradiated series of worlds. The war lasted another few years, as fleets organized by the Council were repeatedly harrowed by the Terran ships attempting to go from one world under invasion to another. The Council Hall itself had to be abandoned, after the Terran ships spontaneously discovered its location and attempted to destroy it. But after the third year, all resistance failed. The pride of the Yaldir species has been thoroughly ground down, and what leaders remained that were not killed in vassal revolts or by nuclear weapons, agreed to an unconditional surrender to the Terran Republic. The galaxy changed rapidly after that. Everything the Terrans did was rapid, as their lives were so short they did everything as fast as they could. While those that survived the war were still in shock a human decade later to their last, most humans had moved on, and a new generation was already coming to be. Under the Terran Republic, every species was eventually to be given a vote once reconstruction of the planets had ended. By the end of a century, most Terrans who had fought in the war were gone, with a new fresh wave of Terrans finishing the work the predecessors left, bringing a new peaceful age of equality between former vassal and elder species. The children, who were playing in the giants' playground, had brought the giants low, backed by nuclear weapons. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1155 Exo Show, written by Looney123 Mon officially boarded the large transport craft of Argus, the last member aboard in the large group. While the majority of his band were of the more mentally gifted and strategically minded variety, a significant minority of the group were, like him, physically capable maybe not as taught as they could have been, but educated enough in the field of battle. Unmarked were kept close to their stations when not in battle, but Mon had earned his mark over a home orbit to go. This brought with it certain privileges and opportunities, which he was taking advantage of now, being assigned to the detail he shared the august with now. Even with that recent overmark, mark, the dozens aboard the craft guaranteed that they were more freshly marked aboard the Argus. They were easy to identify by the fact that they were bouncing more than the acceleration of the transport should cause. Whether it be excitement, nerves, a combination of both, or some other private experience, Mon wasn't the only one to notice. So, uh, don't look them in the eyes, Mon overheard someone ask loudly over the thrum of the propulsion. He quickly found the Enquirer, an even newer marked. He must have obtained it within the last three orbit tenths. What he chose to do with these very newfound privileges was up to him. But it was unusual to use them so soon after such an odd reason. Maybe he was a xenophile. More and more recruits tended to be. That's right, but you never know where their eyes are going to be. Every class of them has a different arrangement. Sometimes the eyes are close together up top, sometimes on the sides. A few classes have them on their backs, too, explained what looked like some scientist sitting next to the newly marked soldier. Beside the scientist, another sat with her head turned away from the conversation, struggling to hold back laughter. Oh, not this right now, mon moaned internally. The Argus had cut off acceleration a few moments ago, so Mon unfastened himself and pushed off towards the spot above the scientist and soldier locked in conversation. And don't gawk too much. They know how big they are. If they can catch you staring, they'll take that as a threat display and make a display back. I watched one of my colleagues get crushed beneath one of the first time he... Uh... You! Stop it! Mon cut in abruptly. He! Pointing a finger at the newly marked soldier... Maybe mocked, but he's clearly new to this. Don't spread misinformation. The scientist rolled his eyes. Even if I've flavored my statements with lies, my advice is still good. He looked away from Mon and back at the soldier. Don't stare, that's pretty much it. And be careful around them. One of my colleagues really did get his foot crushed. Turned the front half into what amounted to liquid. The soldier's facial spurs spiked outward slightly at that tidbit. The female scientist sitting next to the two cut in as well. And it's not really that there's classes of them exactly. Just different types. They have ranks, just not determined by their design. The soldier spurs relaxed again, got a puzzled look on his face. What design? I thought they were... more alive? I finished Mon. No, one of the you've seen are just their machines. To be honest, I've never seen a human in person. He eyed both of the scientists, who, in turn, also affirmed that they hadn't either, and with a quick jerk of their head backwards. "See," mine prompted a newly marked soldier. "Path." "My name is Path." He responded. "See, Path. Even the fancy, experienced non-coms haven't even seen humans in person. You might want to just take about everything they say with some reservations. Still, though, you might have seen the human robots at some point in combat. But I know I have." They are huge, and if real humans are anything like them, expect something big with two arms and two legs. Even those two probably won't say that they have weapons inertly in their arms, though. He teased at the two scientists. Both seemed slightly annoyed at that, but at least the female scientist had a small smile at the jab. The Argus continued to float towards the human ship for some time. Members of the delegation moved about the transport, fiddling with equipment, talking with each other a few taking advantage of the time to relieve themselves. Mon made his way around to a few conversations, mostly with the soldiers like himself. However, he eventually found his way back around to the area of Poth and the scientists, who seemed to have continued their session of questions and answers. So, I get that they're robots, but how do they move? With the motors and pistons and... No, I get that. But what's controlling it? You aren't from the car, are you? Path spurs flattened, embarrassed. Denona. Ah, well, the infrastructure should build on Denona in the next few decades. Anyway, you have to use AI stored in each one. Controlling them all telemetrically would open up a lot of problems. Block the signals, hijack the signals, get into the robot and go backwards to the signal source. Just a whole bunch of issues that could easily be avoided with a locally stored AI. That would also be the reason humans don't like to share their AI technology, interjected the female scientist. If they gave what they have away, then it'd be pretty simple to find something to crack. It'd still be hard to actually do it in the field, but the chance would be there. So they just don't tell anyone, even if we offer them a lot of money. She finished with a murmur. At that moment, the deacceleration warning came, forcing everyone to return to the seats. It wouldn't be long until docking. Well, they were even bigger when you were standing right next to them. The tallest of the delegation stood slightly above their knees. Mon had never been this close to any of the human robots before, so he did take a good long look, drinking in the details, before remembering his professionalism and turning away to look forward. It seemed paths, Standing in front of him had left his professionalism behind on the Argus, gazing slack-jawed at them. His head kept whipping back and forth at several surrounding the unloading zone the Argus had landed in. The one centermost then stepped forward, and a voice emanated from it. Welcome to the USS Pathforger. Please follow me to the meeting area. At that, the robot turned around and started thunderously walking in a specific direction. The other robots seeming to herd the delegation to follow the leader. As they walked through the massive hangar filled with other robots, members of the delegation began to talk to each other. Path slowed down slightly and turned to face Mon eyes wide. The voice sounded real Mon. Their AI is really good, he reverently whispered. Mon smiled at Path's awestruck expression, giving him a friendly slap on the back. Still just a robot, Path. Can't wait to see the real thing. As the group walked towards the large door, larger than even the robots surrounding them, the conversation picked up in apprehension. So, what do you guess they're like? Bigger? Smaller? I think they're probably a bit smaller than their robots, rattle off Barth, Mon couldn't help but be affected by the tangible excitement. Yeah, I can't really imagine them being any bigger than these monsters. I'd put money on them being a bit smaller. Crazy idea, Mon. Explain it to me before you call it crazy. One of these are just suits. Nah, these aren't suits. I did fight with them a while back. One got their leg blown off. When it was being dragged back, I saw that it was just wires and metal. No trail of blood, nothing like that. Why was it being dragged back if there wasn't anyone inside? Mon shrugged at that. You know how sensitive they are about anyone finding out about their technology. They probably just didn't want it falling into enemy hands, like what the scientists said. He finished as they reached the door and went into the next room. The hangar door slowly sealed behind them, the massive machinery powering it slightly vibrating the occupants of the room. Looking away from the enormous door to the other side of the room, most members of the delegation were thrown off by the other door. Specifically, it was much too small for any of the robots to punt through. What in the name? Trailed off path, Mon standing beside him blankly staring at the door. The robot that had led them to this transitionary room made a quite unexpected move by crouching down very low to the floor, almost sitting down. The others did the same. Mon could just overhear someone ahead of them and a small crowd ask, What? Are they going to crawl through the door? Instead of crawling through the door, the robots spontaneously disassembled their chests. But all the delegation had thought a solid metal casing around the central components of the robot's seemed to actually be layers of metal that were designed to open up. And, as it turns out, the central components were more biological than any of them expected. A human stepped out of the robot's chest and turned around to fiddle with the robot for a bit. Mon and Parth simply looked at each other, both dumbstruck. Okay, so they are suits, Parth. I don't know how or why, but they're suits. But in the name of... Cutting baths, exclamation off, all the robotic suits jolted to life for a moment, closing up the chest cavities. The lead human turned from the suit to face the crowd. Uh, I apologize for not greeting you face to face earlier, but rules require use of mech suits while in the hangar area. Now if you please follow me into the meeting area, he finished, turning to the now appropriately sized door and walking through it. The crowd compelled now to follow. As Mon walked through the door, he found himself behind two scientists from Argus. The male scientist turned to the female scientist. A giddy look on his face with spurs spiked upwards. One 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 one, And you can bet our budget. I'm going to try and make one. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1156. The Last Anzac, written by Ak 1308. Once that you got there, Nick looked up then realized he had the badge in his hand again, turning it over and over, rubbing his thumb over the jagged edges. Um, oh, my grandfather gave it to me for luck before I shipped out. He said it was passed down through the family from before we left Earth. Huh, okay, can I see it? Jerome was a good trooper, and he had Nick's back more than once, so Nick passed the badge over without hesitation. Just be careful with it, okay? It's kind of old. Yeah, no shit. Jerome examined it carefully. What's it supposed to be, anyway? A sunrise with ribbons attached? Nick shook his head. Grandad once told me that those rays were originally a collection of blades arranged in a fan. There's a crown in the middle, because they served a king. And the banner underneath used to say something, but most of it's been worn away by now. If he squinted, he could make out some of the letters... Liam, Com, Terry, Fork. But not enough to get any sense out of them. they how old is this anyway? Back in the days where they rode horses and carried swords and stuff. Jerome's tongue was teasing, but he wasn't being mean about it. I don't know, Nick shrugged. Grandad did tell me stories about how some of them used to ride horses into battle. But then they'd get off and fight on foot, so maybe? Anyways... Before my family came off world, we were from a place called uh, Australia. That's where it's from. Never heard of it, though the badge is cool. I like the bit about the blades. Jerome passed the small piece of worn brass back. It's nice to have a bit of history to hang on to. He turned his head at the sound of a nearby explosion. Hang on. What was that? Nick slipped the badge into a pouch he normally kept it in. Sounds like something tripped one of the perimeter mines. Crap, not good. Proximity sensors aren't showing a damn thing. Jerome was all business now. If there's more than one of them, and they aren't showing up on sensors, we're in the crap. He hefted his Type 19 plasma rifle and thumbed the activation button. It hummed in his hands, coming to readiness in a few seconds. I'll go and have a look, Nick heard himself speaking before he realized what he was about to say. They can fool sensors, but they can never have been able to get past the old Mark I eyeball. Jerome didn't contradict him, but the worry on his face was plain to see. Okay, but keep me posted. And keep your head down. Don't be a goddamn hero. No chance of that. I want to come back alive from this. Nick took a deep breath, then adjusted his battle dress to active camo and slithered out of the mini bunker that they were using as a forward observation post. He didn't bring his Type 19 because they made an audible noise when they activated and the power cells showed up on heat detection. He was cursing himself for all kinds of a fool as he stealthed through the overcast battlefield, keeping him low and applying all the extremely specific skills he had acquired over the last few years. Only an idiot left the protection of a bunker to go outside when the enemy were on the prowl. But if the sensors weren't working, there was no other way to find out what was going on. He was good at this. He knew it. Just how good? He was going to find out. About ten minutes in, he had his answer. A group of the enemy soldiers they called the Bastards, their species name being entirely unpronounceable by human throats. Even to his unfiltered vision, they shimmered and wavered as they crept across the shattered landscape, heading unerringly towards the mini-bunker that he'd just left. Crap! Keeping an eye on them, he keyed the whisper comm. Got maybe um a dozen? Heading your... Up until now, the whispercom had been thought undetectable by the bastards. But several of them reacted within seconds, toning and firing something in his direction. Biting off a yelp, he dived for cover. The projectiles landed behind him and detonated, sending him tumbling over and over. Something hit his head, and the light flashed briefly before his eyes. The darkness overcame all. "Oi, mate, you're right there." I had roughly shook his shoulder. "Um, what?" He struggled to open his eyes. Crap, the bastards! Sarge, he's awake! The voice moved away, and heavy boots stepped closer just as he finally succeeded his task. He looked up at a rangy man wearing an archaic uniform squatting down in front of him, a match fred, casting light over lean, hungry features. Bugger me, you're just a bloody nipper! One called Sarge looked to be about 25, but his eyes told another tale. What's your story? He had the Sarge, another soldier, they couldn't be anything but, crouched next to them and proffered something that glinted in the small flame. It was Nick's badge. Hey, he croaked, give that back. The match went out, but it seemed there was enough ambient light for Sarge to take the badge and examine it anyway. Well, he's definitely one of ours. Good enough for me. The warm metal was pressed back into Nick's hand. Thanks, mumbled Nick, putting it away safely. Who are you? First AIF, son. Sarge put a hand on Nick's arm and helped him to a seated position. Now you've got a problem. Your mate's in the crap and you've got one chance to get stuck in. We'll give you support, but it's all on you. You up for it? Jerome. They took the bunker, despair, crushed Nick's heart. I'll never take it back. I didn't even bring my rifle along. One of the soldiers, just out of his line of vision, murmured what sounded like a line from a song. You couldn't let your mates down till they had you dusted off. Frankie's right, said Sarge. You can't do it without a rifle. He unslung something from his back. Here, use mine. Wonderingly, Nick took the weapon. His hands told him that it was made of wood and steel rather than alloy and high-impact plastic. A long, sharp blade was affixed to the muzzle end. As if by instinct, he found the bolt and worked it back and forth again. The check of the round seating in the chamber was almost visceral in its impact. Okay, right, he said. Let's do this. There was a slap on his shoulder. That's bloody spirit, mate. You lead on and we'll be right there, will you? Feeling a lot more confident than he had before, Nick moved off, the weight of the old-fashioned rifle in his hands feeling like a living thing, eager for battle. He located the rear entry of the bunker. It looked like it had been blasted open Two bastards lay inside, sprawled in death. Jerome hadn't gone down easy, it seemed. Then another one stuck its head around the corner. They began to say something, but Nick aimed and fired by instinct. The shot was tremendously loud, temporarily deafening him. In the flare of the muzzle blast, he saw the top of the alien's head simply disintegrate. The element of surprise was gone, so he lunged into the bunker. Jerome was down, but his arms were tied which gave Nick hope for his survival. However, there was still a bunch of bastards milling around. Weapons were already coming up towards him. Conscious thoughts ceased, and he fired, jabbed the blade and smashed the heavy wooden butt into the foes within a maelstrom of noise and smoke. Vaguely, he was aware of the khaki-uniformed soldiers fighting alongside him, striking down his foes, yelling words like Pier Shiba and Light Hoss. But he was too taken up with the fury of battle to stop to consider them. And then there were no more enemies. They were all down, dead or dying. Neither was he unscathed. In such close quarters, some of the bastards had scored on him with a plasma floss or a vibroblade. They had all gone down, but he wasn't doing too well either. The rifle, empty and with a bent blade, slipped from his hand as he fell to his knees. Hang in there, kid, hang on. The one called Sarge was at his side once more, supporting him. A piercing whistle rang out. Oi, Simmy, one for you, mate. Two impressions followed Nick into unconsciousness. The first was that he'd finally gotten a good look at the headwear the anomalous soldiers were wearing. A broad-brimmed hat with one sign pinned up by a badge that looked oddly familiar. And the second was... The clapping of hooves? So, what's the verdict? The doctor looked up in the scan. Get strong, he'll pull through. But it was touch and go. If he'd shown up at the aid station an hour later, he'd be dead right now. The officer frowned. So how did he show up? Did he walk in? It was 15 kilometers from the bunker to the aid station. No. Damnedest thing. The doctor tapped the scans. A hologram unfolded. He took a leg wound and he wouldn't have been able to walk 100 meters much less 15 clicks. The orderlies at the aid station swear blind that some soldier wearing a uniform they didn't recognize delivered him slung over the back of a donkey. The donkey? The officer tilted his head. Do we even have donkeys on this planet? The doctor shrugged. If you'd asked me that yesterday, I would have said no. Kid's a hero, by the way. Uh, His bunker buddy's only lightly wounded. Kid saved his life. Deserves a medal. He'll get one. The officer left the doctor to his work and proceeded along the corridor deep in thought. There was more oddity to the situation than the medical professional knew. It examined the alien dead, and few of the wounds matched the Type 19 or the vibroblades they all carried. Heavy lead slugs had shredded the creatures the soldiers had called bastards, and the cuts and stab wounds had been inflicted by a standard metal blade. When the young soldier had gotten the weapon from to do that damage, he had no idea. The boy himself claimed to remember nothing of the incident. The officer paused, looking through an observation window at the soldier in question. His wounds had been treated and he was in a natural sleep, looking younger than ever. But there was an indefinable air about him, of someone who had been tested and tempered in the fires of battle, and who had not been found wanting. Onward strolled the officer through the complex, until he reached his own quarters. There were two electronic calendars side by side, one showing current time and date on the planet that they were on, and one showing the date back on Earth, allowing for relativistic differences. Their date, he noted in passing, was April the 25th. Back in the hospital bed, Nick lay, barely awake. In his hand, the brass badge sat, warm and comforting. The tail end of the song wove its way through his mind, and the ghosts can be heard as they're marching by the billabong. Who come a-waltzing Matilda with me? End of story. Tales to right base 1157 Uneven Justice, written by Chucky Snow. The sounds enveloped him. The hum of the engines... The spongy pulse of the air handlers, the chirps and beeps from the control panels. At least, on a fighter craft, you can kill the damned alarms, he thought to himself. Freighters assume their crews are morons. He broke off another rack of circuits. This was the last panel containing the autopilot and remote overrides. The damn Artigas built enough damn failsafes into the damn ships. But with enough time and energy, you can break the most foolproof of systems thought. More alarms now. They were becoming piercing. He took a hammer and shattered the speaker that he could reach, but there were a few behind grills that he couldn't get to, and they were plenty loud still. He checked his heading again. Despite his tampering, the ship was flying true. He'd be in a gravity well within the hour. did in two, it'd be all over. He caught his reflection in the glass panel. He barely recognized the face staring back, His face was covered in scars, and some were so fresh that he hadn't even seen them before. Just seeing a human face was odd enough these days. He hadn't seen another member of his own kind in over a month. He wiped some blood off of his cheek with the inside of his shirt, checked his watch, and left the bridge. The hallway leading into the main cargo base was flashing a brilliant green in time with the duller klaxons now filling his ears. He stepped over the dead body, careful to avoid the greasy pool of liquid slowly leaking onto the plating. The Atrigus may have been some of the best weapons builders and sellers around, but there weren't very good fighters. He'd taken out a dozen crew, and it had only cost him the use of an He considered it a fair trade. He opened the aft cargo bay and went in. As the doors closed, the alarms got significantly quieter. Normally, no one would be in here during a fight so apparently they didn't see the need for elaborate alarm systems. He relished the quiet. Moving along, he walked amongst some 50 quantum particle bombs that were strapped to the floor plating. They were big, ugly cylinders with little thought to aesthetics. They didn't need it. Dropped from orbit, they could just tumble around into the lower atmosphere and explode at the height. With an effective killing range of 40 square miles each, aim wasn't a major concern. He said about arming all 50 of the bombs. The job was easy but monotonous. He absently touched a well-worn stud on his watch. A female voice started speaking. I hope this message finds you. I don't know how long I'll have, so let me start by saying I love you. You know I do, and I know you love me. But I just wanted to tell you one last time. He moved under the next cylinder. Five down... 45 to go. They've the outer wall of the compound. Our boys are out there, trying to help the others that are left. But they're outgunned. It's only a matter of time. The orbital defenses did nothing. They must have been waiting for the last naval ship to start its sentry sweep of the rest of the system. The Navy knows what's going on, but they're hours away. They only have minutes. He pushed back a tear as he noted the frailty in her voice. They landed without any resistance. Despite all the drills we had, they walked all over us. We we know we only have 400 people, and certainly half of that are dead already. We saw the green phaser fire mow down what security forces we had. Then the boys and I helped the other settlers seal the compound. Green phasers meant a tricker's weapons. It was the reason he commandeered the ship. It was the reason that he tortured the captain. You'd be so proud of Geoffrey and Luke. They can barely even hold up those rifles, but they wanted to do their part to defend our home. I didn't want them out there, but I know we're all going to die today. Governists don't take prisoners. At least I could do is let our boys die like men, instead of cowering in a hut like their mother. He threw a wrench across the bay, striking the bulkhead with a dull gong. He half-cursed himself for not having a different recording to listen to. But his wife's dying words were still able to give him some comfort and resolve. So he let them play. I'm hearing less and less fire from the balustrades. I I think they'll be in the inner compound soon. I hope our boys did well Hunt. I... I'm going to keep talking for as long as I can. Um, I I don't know if they're going to take out the antenna or oh, come straight for the huts. Uh, I'm afraid of even looking outside. It's funny, but I take solace in the fact that the criffinists don't torture, don't let you suffer. When they finally find me, I imagine I'll be dead moments later. Henry, you'll be happy to know that I have a cobalt grenade on me. The pin is already pulled. When they shoot me, I'll drop the thing. If I'm lucky, I'll kill the ones that kill me. If I'm very lucky, I'll have gotten the ones that will have killed our boys. I think I can hear the bulkheads of the compound opening. That can only mean that they've breached the inner wall. So now, it's only a matter of... The recording dropped into a digital static for a few seconds before ending. Henry surmised that they had gone for the antenna tower first, then cleared the compound of the women and children. He didn't know exactly how things had gone from there, but he knew that he sat within our large pit thanks to a grenade explosion. He also knew that despite being 11 years old, his son Geoffrey had shot his rifle until the cell had run out. It had taken DNA analysis to identify his eight-year-old brother. Henry played the recording several more times before finishing his work. He set about removing the tire lines from the bombs, leaving smaller deck lines in the interior units. He hoped that this part of the plan would go well, when it wasn't critical. By an hour to go, the ship was hitting the gravity well of the Crafani homeworld. He headed back to the control room. He had left the communications bench intact. There were messages he needed to play in a few minutes. It had taken him some time and a fair bit of torture to get the words out of the captain, but he was able to record what he needed. A bit of editing, and he had a few messages in proper Atriga's voice. He guided the ship onto a shallow descent orbit. At the proper time, he played messages number one. This is cargo ship eighty-eight four six. We are experiencing engine trouble and are jetting some cargo. Cargo will burn upon entry. The captain's voice said, sounding nervous and understandably considering the supposed circumstances. Henry then blew open aft cargo bay exterior doors. The venting atmosphere easily blew 30 of the bombs out behind the ship. They rapidly drifted apart. But they were all planet-bound. Henry hoped that no one bothered to scan the debris. He turned off the communications and headed to the engine room. Henry had fitted remote detonators to the side of the antimatter bottles. Each of the four main bottles had their explosive equivalent of tens of bombs now drifting planetward. The bottles were incredibly tough and had a wide array of safety features. Normally, they could take even a terminal impact without issue. But the right explosives had the right spot and they'd pop right open. The explosion would be instant and impressive. The ship should be able to take half a continent... He activated the triggers, with a remote detonator in hand, and returned to the bridge. As he turned on the radio again, a cacophony of messages blared out at him. Ignoring them all, he played message number two. This is cargo ship AT-846. Due to engine troubles, we are unable to hold orbit. We are attempting to make planetary touchdown. We will be jettisoning further cargo and hazardous material. Henry put the message on loop and went to attitude controls. He rotated the ship around until the open cargo doors were at a leading edge of the ship. Blowing the attitude thrusters to full load, he was able to impart nearly a full G onto the straps holding down the remaining twenty bombs. Those straps snapped as intended, and another twenty bombs began decaying orbit ahead of his flight path. Henry closed the bay doors and righted the ship. Minutes later, the telltale red plumes of atmosphere started puffing by the main viewport. Henry dutifully slowed the descent of the freighter, aiming near the capital city. There was a large spaceport thirty-odd miles outside of the city. Things would look normal, at least for now. Henry took a deep breath. Three years of planning had gone into this. It was almost over. He was probably at 50,000 feet and falling. Time to wrap this up. He thought. He set the radio to broadcast as widely as possible. Then he played his last message. This is cargo ship at We of the noble Atricus are declaring war on the deceitful and cowardly Cephrinists. They do not deserve our business, but they do deserve our weapons. This is but the start of a glorious and righteous war. Long live Atricus! The message had taken an hour to get out of the captured. For a fairly non-violent race, Henry had to admit the captain put up with a fair amount of pain before reading his lines. In moments, tug ships would be lifting off the surface to attempt to engage and buoy the freighter. Anyone remotely intelligent would now know what the ship should have been carrying, and keeping it off the surface would be an obvious move. Henry also knew that they wouldn't fire, but instead would be attempting to override the flight controls. equipment for that laid broken at his feet he saw the fur ships rising to meet him they wouldn't be of any use at a predetermined height henry blew the antimatter bottles the resulting explosions ripped the atmosphere right off of the area of the planet the half dozen people spared instant death in the capital soon died of asphyxiation in all 42 million died just from the ship's blast Absolute chaos broke out across the planet, and no one thought to look at the lost cargo. For each quantum bomb was smaller than the smallest ship, and having no real energy signature of their own. They went quite unnoticed until they began blowing holes in the ground all over the planet. Of the 50, 30 exploded populated centers, another 25 million died from those bombs. Without any further evidence, the Kifrinists declared war on their longest ally, the Artrigus. The Artigas, in turn, used the full might of their weapon hordes to ruthlessly counterattack. Within days, the aliens with that slaughtered Henry's family were warring with the aliens that supplied their weapons. Within a week, billions on both sides lay dead. Entire planets laid wasted. Henry would have been very pleased to know that the two sides were quite evenly matched. Their war of attrition would be bloody and would leave a scant survivor's easy-picking for the numerous races that once lived in fear of the two. But the last thought that ran through Henry's mind was the fact that the two races were hardly equal to the value he placed in his late family's lives. He lamented that it was the best that he could do. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1158 the Grey, written by destroyer Matron MK8. The Grey observed the remains from the comfort of the central hub. The vessel was saucer shaped like its own. No damage could be seen, but it could feel the ship's pain. The cry had persisted, faint but desperate, over the many, many light years the Grey had traveled. The Grey had no name, no gender. Its people had no need. Such things. All were the grey. Each was distinct. Through the Quem, the solving each of the grey was as different from the others as sight is different from sound. The grainy words, but Red used them. The Quem was enough. Four more of the grey joined the Quem. They observed, they questioned, they made a plan. The damaged ship Quemmed for help, but they had not been able to connect to it directly. They would go to the ship. They would heal the damage. They would find the cause. Two would remain and monitor their progress. The two would extract the three should the need arise. The three stood in the center of the ship. Light surrounded them. The beam carried them through the hull of the ship down to the grass below. They approached the down saucer. An entrance lay open on the side of the damaged vessel. The three entered. The three found no signs of life. The Grey was not surprised. If there had been any more Grey on the planet, they would have quemmed. The dim starlight filtering through the entrance did little to illuminate the ship. The three altered their eyesight to adjust. The interior of the Salsa was similar to the Grey's old ship. Or, at least it had been. Dark-stained street across its floor. Blood... Blood from the grey. Foodstuffs and instruments were missing. Pieces of the ship had been torn out and carried away. Most disturbing of all, the nodes had been pierced. The nodes were the saw of the ship, the source of its quim. The central node resided at the ship's center. The other twelve were spaced evenly along the edges of its interior. Cutting tools had been stabbed into each of the nodes. The nodes could not heal as the weapons were still lodged within them. One node had not been penetrated as deeply as the others. This was the source of the ship's quemma for harm. The three removed the weapons. A quick inspection confirmed the cutting tools had belonged to the grey. The three waited. The nodes healed. When the healing was complete, the three and the two quimmed with the ship. They lived its memories En route to homeworld, six of grey on board, nineteen others. The grey had abducted them from their planet. The others were bipedal, like the grey. Their heads were smaller, their muscles more developed. Unlike the grey, they had fur, most notably on the tops of their heads. Their skin tones ranged from a pink to a brown. They were intelligent and used tools, but they could not quam. They were lesser, and that made them playthings. The Grey often visited and took the Lesser's from this planet. They would probe orifices, examine organs, or simply cut and burn the Lesser over and over again. While some knowledge was gained from these experiments, the true purpose was to inflict as much pain and humiliation as possible. The Grey loved hurting the Lesser. They reveled in the writhing, the cries, and especially the flaring of the creature's life glow. Through the aura, the sapiens project, the grey literally taste the pain, drinking in the fear. Most of the time, the grey would return the lessers to their homeworld after healing their bodies and wiping their minds. The mind wipe was imperfect, and after the lesser would have flashes of memory return. More importantly, the mind wipe did nothing to remove the psychic trauma other experiments had inflicted on the lesser. The grey found the last bit of cruelty hilarious, and save it the knowledge that their subjects would struggle and suffer, and not even know why. This particular group of lesser would not be returned. The Grey would take them to the homeworld. They would be the playthings for the rest of their lives. The Grey would do things to them that their primitive minds could barely imagine. The six of the Grey were playing with one of the lesser, a female. Three were in her chamber, while three prepared equipment for the next lesser that they would torment. They quimmed together so that all could enjoy her distress. One of the three pulled too hard on the lesser. Her torso shifted out of the restraining beam. The female grabbed one of the cutting tools on the train next to her and stabbed one of the three. All in the quim felt the pain. The grey are unaccustomed to such things. They screamed together, falling away from the female. The ship turned on one of its notes towards her, preparing a new restraint beam the female, bleeding, screaming, turned and stabbed at the movement. The cutting tool pierced the node. The ship quemmed a silent scream. In its discomfort, it failed to maintain the other restraint beams. The lesser escaped into the ship. Damaged and afraid, the ship sought out our nearest habitable planet. As it traveled, it watched the lesser murder the Grey. The three and the two broke quem with the ship. They had seen enough. The three would return to their ship and they, downed Salsa, would be sent back to the homeworld. The Grey doubted any of the lesser was still alive, as the planet that they'd crashed into was barely habitable. It was checked for souvenirs nonetheless, and any lesser survived, they would be taken. They would suffer for daring to harm the Grey. As they exited, a searing pain stabbed through one of the three. Still linked, the Grey screamed, the one of the three looked, saw one of the lesser behind it. The lesser had a length of wood in its hands. The wood had a sharp stone tip, a spear. The tip had been plunged into the one's side. The grey broke Quem with the three. It ordered its ship to extract them. As the travel beam carried them aloft, the grey saw the lesser coming up with them. They grabbed a hold of the three. The grey shot down the travel beam. The three dropped. Quemming, begging for help. The Grey would give none. It would never risk its own safety to help another. It was above such things. The other of the two quemmed agreement. They watched the three fall into the waiting mass of Lesser. The Grey consented. It was safe for the moment. Even on their homeworld, the Lesser lacked the ability to damage a saucer from the outside. It was attempted to watch the three die. It did not dare... To focus attention was to invite Quembe, and it did not want to fear the fate of the three. It focused its attention on the Lesser's strange. Only nineteen Lesser had been on the down Salsa. There were forty-six of them surrounding the down ship now. Their breeding cycle was not fast enough to account for that kind of population increase. Where had the others come from? The leader of the Lesser, a female, shouted orders in a guttural language. Several lessers with spears ran into the down saucer, attacking the nodes. The Grey ignored the ship's cries for help. The Grey quemmed its own ship to scan the planet. The ship found 57 ships of the Grey scattered along its surface. Three of the ships were fairly close to the downed saucer. The other ships were dead or too damaged to quemmer. The Grey suspected that they had suffered the same fate as the ship that it had come for Damaged by escaped lesser who slaughtered the grey on board. The lesser had survived. Red formed communities scattered across the planet, likely unaware of other survivors they endured. Anger threaded its way through the grey. These primitives, worthless beings who could not quim, who could barely reach their own moon, these lesser had colonized a world through the murder of the grey. The very thought was offensive. The light of the travel beam broke the grey from its musings. One of the three was still alive. It had quimmed the ship. The grey panicked. It tried to shut down the beam. The one would not let it. Its desperate fear made it stronger in the quem than the grey. It shut it out, broke the grey's quemlink. link. Neither it or the other of the two could access the ship. The grey's panic increased. It quimmed at the one, pleaded it needed to quemd the ship. It needed to activate defenses. The one did not hear. It gripped tight onto the quemlink, shutting the two out. It cared for nothing but its own escape from the lesser. The one passed through the hull of the saucer as the Grey had feared. Three of the lesser clung to its body. Two males with spear and a female with a bow. Primitive weapons that might have amused the Grey in any other circumstances. They were not amusing, now. The travel beam set one and the passengers gently down at the center of the saucer. The Grey could see the fear and excitement on the life glow of the males. The female's life glow was nothing but cold, sharp focus. With a shock of recognition, the gray knew that it was the same female that initiated the escape and slaughter on the ship that it had come to find. The Grey pressed on Quem the ship as hard as it could. One of the spear wielders thrust downward, impaling the one of the three. The beam broke the one's hold on the Quemlink. The Gray pushed through, told the ship to activate restraining beams. It would have preferred deadlier measures, but the more powerful weapons would take precious seconds to activate, and it dared not spare them. The hum of the ship increased for half a second. Then the beams struck. The two males were caught, paralyzed. The female rolled out the way. The ship readied another beam. She came up on one knee, bow pointed skyward. She loosed an arrow a fraction of a second before the restraining beam engulfed her. The arrow struck the central node. The ship screamed through the squirm. The restraining beams flickered out. The grey froze in a horrified shock. The two males charged. Spears held low. One came for the grey, the other for the two. Fear knocked the grey out of the stupor. It raced for the wall of the saucer. It climbed as fast as it could. The male stabbed with his spear, but the Grey managed to avoid it. It climbed higher, out of the Lesser's reach. If the Grey could just reach the central node, it could remove the arrow. Then the ship could reactivate its defenses. The other of the two died on a spear of a Lesser. The other male tried to climb after the Grey, but could not. The Grey could make it. The Grey could still win pain. Sharp, searing pain shot through the Grey's arm. It almost fell off the wall. A wooden shaft had pierced through its forearm an arrow. The female had shattered. It had never felt such pain. The grey gritted its teeth and tried to keep climbing. It burned, and the arm would not support its weight. The best the grey could do was cling to the wall. It watched the female as she drew another arrow. Her life glow still contained that sharp, cold focus, but now, It sent something roiling underneath it. Hatred. Rage. Murderous intent, decided the Grey. The Lesser's arrow missed by a few inches. The next one sank into its leg. The Grey fell. The impact knocked the air out of it. The shock sent the pain of its wound shearing hotter than it thought possible. The Grey could do nothing but lay stunned, unable to gasp. The female Lesser regarded it, arrow-drawn, she barred orders at the males. They ran to the nodes, stabbing each in turn with cutting tools they found. The grey recovered enough to gasp for breath. It flopped over, crawling away from the lesser. If it could reach one of the nodes before the lesser damaged them all, it might be able to force a quim. It was a long shot, but it was the only hope the grey had. Whimpering, it crawled. The lesser watched it. Then she simply calmly shot an arrow into its other leg. Screaming and writhing, the grey tried to keep crawling. It could not. Its legs were useless. It tried to pull itself with its one good arm. The lesser shot an arrow into it. She regarded it for a moment and then turned and put an arrow through the skull of the grey in the center of the ship. She put another into the head of the other of the two. Having assured herself that they were dead, she sent down her bow. The lesser walked up to the last of the grey, helpless. Hurting. It could do nothing but watch her approach. The deadly focus fell away from her life glow. Her aura shone with something else now cold fury, burning hatred, grim satisfaction. She drew a sharpened stone from her belt. She whispered to the grain a language it did not know. She caressed its skin with a sharp stone knife. Bresh horror flooded the gray. The lesser was not going to ken it. This lesser was going to kill it, slowly. She would give it more pain. She would make it suffer, as she had suffered. She would savor its screams. The Grey could not move, could not fight, could not escape. It quemmed for help. There was no response. The ship was too hurt to quem. The other ships were dead or too hurt to quem. The other Grey were dead. The rest of its kind, too far away to hear it, or unwilling to heed its call, It was alone, helpless, afraid. Nalessa knew. She could not quim, could not see its life glow, but she knew. It could see it in her life glow. She knew. And she was pleased. Slowly, gently, she pressed the knife against it. Nalessa began to cut. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1159. Case Studies on Miscommunication. Written by Alpha Beetle. The veil had lifted only three months earlier. What lifting actually entails only is a lab egghead's kank tell, But for us regular folks, it's enough to know that people no longer went nuts when they touched it. It just, um, quit. Became normal space overnight. Entire swaths of the galaxy so far outside the reach of any known species, had suddenly turned into a wide, open expanse. No one in the entire Confederation knew what to expect. So, galactic governance being what it is, the veil was immediately declared forbidden until the politicians could sort themselves out. And of course, the peoples of the galaxy, being as they are, they were immediate and simultaneous rush of hopefuls and desperates, entrepreneurs and criminals, and just overly curious individuals over the new found border. For the first time in a millennium, there was an unknown part of the galaxy to explore and settle, and the whole confederation was electrified. Myself, I absolutely hated it. See, I worked then for the inhabited room lighthouse and rescue service. About two steps down from the Confederate Galactic Bureau of Citizen Logistics, migration and internal displacement. Quite a mouthful, isn't it? Border butlers, we used to call ourselves, since our job was mainly bowing and scraping to some galactic high official or hyper-rich vacuum head come to the border for secret research or extreme entertainment. And then get them back out when they inevitably got into trouble. If it wasn't engine failure, it was a misjump followed by a quick evacuation from the Vale and a transfer to rehabilitation. Or food poisoning. An obscure and thankless job, and literally as far from everything as you could get, but it paid well. Gotta feed the family, you know. Anyhow, when the Vale came down, the Bureau put us butlers in charge of keeping the border closed. We were completely unequipped for that, obviously. And to stir up the pot, every damn polity bordering on the Vale posted their own security forces on Border Plane. The Confederation sent us uh, reinforcements to police, coordinators, medical staff, you name it. Usually with wildly conflicting orders and extremely muddy chains of command. As a result, the whole region was a perfect mess. And we found ourselves toiling day and night to regain some semblance of order. Me and my crew were amongst the first to meet the people of the Vale. You know, I'm quite proud of that. The circumstances of meeting, notwithstanding, few people in the galaxy have ever seen one of their kind. The Veilites are a mysterious species. The only species in the galaxy to have developed completely in isolation of any other sentience. And they're not too keen on contact to this day though I think anyone suddenly discovering a whole bunch of previously unknown sentients co-inhabiting their galaxy would turn out a bit uh, wary. But developed they had. Oh, yes, wise apes, they call themselves, actually. And that is certainly not an understatement. But I digress. The meeting, like I said, I worked for the rescue service. I was a border plane overseer, so I had a personal crew. And a station right on the exit of the main Faster Than Light laid. Any vessel on that lane would come to a 90-degree angle to the border plane, which made it easy and cheap to monitor it with sensors. Then again, no one crossing the plane illegally would use the official lane. But in theory, it worked brilliantly. That particular week had been crazy enough already, with dozens of illegal jumps, most of which we apprehended, but many of which got away too. The closer you could get to the official lane before jumping... The less fuel you had to burn at the other end so our days were a near constant game of cops and robbers illegal explorers tried to skirt as close to the station as they could and we tried to grab them before they could go super we just returned from a failed raid and the whole team was positively exhausted i was half asleep in my chair in the operations room wearing my absolutely filthy boarding gear from the second day in a row i hadn't eaten it was Hillian Sib in Travius who is a cheating louse and should never play cards against, by the way. That shook me out of my coma. Overseer, there's a signature. I groaned. I hadn't called my mates and our children in more than two winks. I had just realized. So to top off my misery off, I now felt both lonely and guilty. And now that call would have to wait again. I stretched and tried to compose myself, shedding some matted scales in the process. "'Where?' I mumbled, trying to focus on the projection showing the lane exit area. "'I, uh, it's rather far inside the veil, Overseer,' reported C uncertainly. The strong form's massive limbs moved dexterously over the sensor controls. I tilted my ears in puzzlement. A returning explorer,' I suggested. "'Kiki, my boarding advisor, shook her tail dismissively. "'Unlikely, Overseer,' opined Kiki.' The world's known space is the tighter jump. Revealing one's presence so bracingly is as just asking to be arrested. A suspicious tail prick. Strange behavior. I waited for the alternatives. The unknown vessel stood still. All right, I decided. Whatever the situation, we're gonna board and inspect them. Master Odo Vemek, prepare to pre jump signature, interrupted Seep. Landing on the oh, stars around, right in the station my sluggish brain didn't manage to process the report properly before the spacious operations room was lit by a flash and a tremendous bang echoed through the corridors i spun out of my chair as down and came face to face with the first veil light that i ever met i have to tell you i was so taken aback that i didn't even know what to think two aliens had as far as i could tell materialized out of thin air in the middle of my operations room they were somewhat shorter than me coming up only to about chest height, covered from top to bottom in deep black clothing. They seemed precariously balanced on but two unproportionately long and gangly appendages. They stared at us. We stared back. I aimed my stunners. This is Confederation Station. Identify yourself, I demanded. My implant cycling programs at top speed in search of common language. In return, I got a burst of sound speech or a bunch of gibberish, as far as my translator could tell. One of the aliens stepped forward menacingly, and I squeezed the trigger. Firing from a half-hunched position, as I was, the stun round caught the forward alien straight in the center, reversing its movement mid-step. The invader flew back, rolling across the floor, and immediately bounced back into a standing position. Both the, obviously quite tough, Aliens screamed in anger, or fear, or some other emotion that I could not tell. And in front of my astonished eyes, they disappeared. In a flash of light and the weird non-blast of air rushing to fill a void, the aliens were gone. First stunned silence reigned the room. My mind was now anything but asleep, trying desperately to make sense of what I'd just seen. It, uh, I, I think they just, uh, jumped, overseer said Sieb, staring at the sensor terminal. I felt like I should protest, even though I had witnessed the event myself. Individuals using faster-than-light travel was a ridiculous idea, like space vessels navigating by sight or colonies on stars. A bedtime story. Security breach on layer 4, reported Kiki crisply. I buried my astonishment for later and unlocked my helmet from the chair. Whatever they were, they were intruding on my station. Odo, your team with me, stunners and maximum power! I barked as I strode out of the operations room, Odo's security detail scrambling up from behind me. On the commnet, I could already hear reports, orders of stunned fire as the station mobilized around us. The hunt was on. The following hour or so was utter chaos. As far as I could tell, no more aliens had appeared. Though, it was hard to tell since the original two seemed to be everywhere at once. Every time a team would back them into a corner, they would be gone in a flash, reappearing somewhere else inside the station. Had that been their only trick, perhaps the chase would have been over sooner. Though I guess, in the end, it was better for all of us that it wasn't. But I'm getting ahead of myself. Overseer, they just slipped through the bulkhead, reported one of my troopers, just as I arrived to the scene on Layer 4. And so they did. Repeatedly, too. I saw it happen twice. The aliens walked through the solid metal wall as if it was water. Or dropping through the crate as if it wasn't there. They overrode the security lockdown by touching it. bring aside the most upset engineering insectoid in the reactor room. This was about half an hour into the chase. And I was getting both tired and annoyed. As it seemed, out of the shifty bipedals could also jump several times their height. Stick to the walls and push adult strong forms. Well, you get the picture. But let me tell you, after the sixth or seventh technological miracle you witness, impossible feats become less and less of an existential problem, and more and more of a tactical one. We realized quickly that the aliens' movement was not random, and that more esoteric tricks were only used as a last-ditch escape. Their teleportation never deposited them in a room with any personnel, for example, The aliens seemed unable or unwilling to leave the station itself. And finally, after much contrived maneuvering, trial and error, and several bruised and unconscious troopers, we managed to corner the intruders in a comms array maintenance corridor. Outside was nothing but the cold void of space. In the room around and below were my troops, as well as interspersed through all the open spaces of the station. We had the intruders surrounded. I carefully approached the strange creatures, stunners held high. So far, all attempts at communication had failed. Don't resist. Just tell me who you are. I tried once again. The translation programs already running through quite obscure languages and dialects. Sound based languages on every frequency nothing. Light based languages on every frequency nothing. When the how were these things from? The obvious answer was pulsing in the back of my head, though I tried to ignore it. The veil. These were creatures from beyond the veil. We don't want to use force, I repeated, trying to sound calm and confident. The aliens clung to each other and pressed tighter against the base of the station's main comms Tower, letting out high-pitched yelps and chitters. what I assumed to be their heads turning rapidly from left to right, scanning the approaching security detail. Slowly, the ring of troops around the two aliens tightened. Suddenly... One of them whooped around, as if realizing what they were leaning against. It had a sudden, terrible premonition as a small, black-clad creature pressed both of its appendages against the thick bundles of cables. Strange sparks appearing in the air. My headset came alive with Sieb's alarmed voice. How is here? How comes the ray sending without programming? I hastened my approach. The other aliens were blocking my line of fire. Signature, yelled Sieb, from an unknown vessel, something is... The channel broke down into static. With this, hiss, I lunged for the intruder. The other one screamed, and there was all warning I got. The two small aliens slid out of my reach as the hallway we were standing in stretched bizarrely. In contempt of all known laws of physics, shunts and connectors screamed and fizzled along the entire corridor. Light fixtures exploded in sprays of plastic shrapnel. In previously non-existent spaces, warped geometry folded over and over again upon themselves. Violent nausea hit me like a kick to the gut. Through my terror, I thought of my family, assured that I would never see them again. Only at that moment did I realize the true identity of the little aliens that had evaded us so handily, and the playground nature of our chase. For, balm between slipping slices of reality, stepped a truly terrified creature, A perfectly translated message thundered over the comm channels through shattering firewalls, pulsing itself through our implants and straight into our minds. The adult alien bared its fangs and roared its challenge. Take your hands off, my children, right this very moment. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1160 A Scythe of Sand written by not a hat. My lab shook as orbital bombardment ravaged the city. It was digging deeper. I didn't have much time left. I looked up at the huge machine I'd leave it over for weeks, months. Glowing capacitor arrays blinked and blinkered. Quantum computers phased in and out of reality with the strange, mind-bending twists of tortured logic which warped space and time. Surrender! I winced at the psionic broadcast, nearly dropping by terminal. I gathered it up with shaking hands, and pushed back the oppressive fear and lethargy, once again cursing the ones who'd driven us this far. I unsteadily ran a few more diagnostics. The entanglement array checked and double-checked. The nanoforge hummed and came to life. You haven't killed me yet, I bumbled. My stiffened as I felt one of the enemy minds latch onto my words, my defiance, and bend the will against me. Surrender, human. No. Drawing direct attention wasn't wise, but I couldn't hold back the trickle of anger, the shred of rage. You too will fall. Pecking hackers. I laughed hysterically as sheer mental pressure forced me to my knees, cursing the aliens, and their sufficiently advanced technology. I didn't even have a tinfoil hat. Who could have guessed that we'd face direct mental attack? We'd been preparing for invasion ever since our long-range scopes had picked up the Amada. It was mad. 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 Mad galaxy. We'd known that before we had proof that we weren't alone. Orbital cannons, stealth warp mines, bioweapons, even the guided solar flare array. We'd built and overbuilt our defenses, again and again. It had all been pretty useless against enemies who could think us to death. If you want me, you'll have to come and get me. The blank glare from the overhead fluorescence wavered as more assailants noticed my resistance. I shakily picked up the last few components of the device I was assembling and tottered over to the machine. You are the last. Damn straight I am. I picked up a soldering iron and gathered my resolve, remembering my teammates, scientists, all the brightest minds we could find, all tasked with the impossible. Find a solution. The mental assault had killed them all. I pictured Stephen, who'd screamed himself to death, Amelia, who'd gone to bed and never gotten up, Mohinder who'd taken a welding torch and, um, "'Your method is futile!' Ghostly voices mocked and derided me, trying to fill my brain with despair. They didn't think so. I could feel the weight of my team's responsibility, the driving purpose of all my friends and co-workers, pushing me forward, driving me to carry on. Their ghosts supported me, controlling the trembling in my hands as I finished the last of the connections." We'd built this machine together, a labor of love and fear. The last ditch, fingers on the precipice attempt. I wouldn't let them down. Humanity is gone. Maybe. I slumped against the wall, the hot iron slipping from my grasp. I let it smolder on the concrete. I had no idea what was happening outside, if there really were no other humans left. No matter... One should be enough. We are unstoppable. Could be. I slid along the wall, letting it support my weight as I stumbled to the chair. Yet, there's something even you fear, isn't there? Ha! <laughs> the chorus attacking me roiled with scorn. Nothing stands before us. Sure. I strapped my legs in before carefully lowering the intricately detailed electroencephalograph helmet over my shaved head. It was a hodgepodge of wires and relays, a marvel of miniaturization capable of capturing the movement of every single electron in every single neuron in my brain. Also, Darris had claimed, But what about the thing behind you? I closed my eyes for a moment, trying to muster the last of my intellect, the Phage. The minds arrayed against me recoiled at that, ever so slightly. I grinned. How? It's not a one-way street. I slammed one wrist down, feeling the clamped snick into place. Telepathy. You assaulted sold on us for months, mentally, even before you resorted to jackhammering me out. When you reached for our fears, we saw some of yours. The near-continuous shaking from the orbital bombardment made it impossible for me to judge if I was trembling with emotion. You can't fight self-replicating nanobots with conventional weapons. Stomp them, and they will scatter, withdraw, and they will strike back harder than ever. Even the mighty Scion spread from Van Neumann's ferocious hunger. How did you feel when your vaunted mental abilities slithered off the barely self-aware swarm? You couldn't even assault a billion humans at once, when there were that many of us. A trillion nanobots must have given you quite a headache. Empty words, meaningless taunts. By the time the phage arrives, we will have stripped your world bare. You'll long be dead before they pick your bones clean. Oh, of course, I slammed my other wrist down feeling the cold hiss of the aerosol as a cocktail of drugs was driven into my skin. No one and nothing lives forever, but you won't kill me. The helmet crackled to life, and for a moment the mental pressure abated as electricity crawled across my scalp. My grin grew wider as the capacitors started discharging. The quantum computers kicked into overdrive, spinning halos of Cherenkov radiation as it proceeded at an unimaginable amount of information at blinding speed. The internal energy cells started thumping wildly, pouring power one by one into the hungry machine. It was only moments, but it felt like hours before the nanoforge screamed to life. The noise cutting through even the clamor in my head with a white hot blade of sound. What are you doing? I'd never decided if there was more than one voice in my head, and asking had always seemed a bad idea. It felt like hundreds, thousands of eyes were pressing on me, uncountable presence weighing me down with mass. It didn't really matter now, though. Dying, I replied calmly. Everyone does it, eventually. But this, at least, I'll do on my terms. There was a final flash from the computers as they finished crunching the data. In moments, my heart will stop beating, my blood will stop pumping, my lungs will stop moving. The quantum states that represent my consciousness, supported by the biocomputer I've used till now, will irreparably collapse. Unrecoverable. The wail of the nanoforge finally started winding down. Perhaps it'll even happen. A white light engulfed me. And there was finally stillness. It should have been instantaneous from my perspective. Still, I seemed to hang in the light for nothing short of eternity. I didn't think, but on a level below thought I knew that one last stream of data, a carefully sculpted packet of light waves, had been transmitted through the fibers linking my head to the computer. No! What? I was surprised for a moment that I could even still hear them. I slowly unfolded my new body, releasing the carefully modified latch on the inside of the nanoforged door. What have you done? Copying an intelligence is impossible! I laughed, the sound odd to my new senses. I looked over at my previous frame, cooling in its restraints. This new body felt light, powerful, and the psionic assault seemed to simply slide off of it. Of course! Quantum states cannot be cloned. There aren't two of me now, are there? However, quantum states can be teleported. I shrugged, the motion rippling me slightly. But that's insanity! You would subject yourself to death for this! But it worked, didn't it? I strode carefully across the room and leaned over my old shell. Perhaps I really was the last. If so... I slowly slid my own eyelids closed. This is the end of Homo sapiens. Pooh, now you're a cyborg. You think you've escaped? Above me, the bombardment redoubled, even as they bent more of their psionic power against me. Cyborg, huh? I smirked. You still haven't realized what we did yet, have you? I let some of my control relax. Dust. Microscopic particles of metal and plastic and knowledge and power began spilling from my arms. The assault weakened further as I began spreading across the room, my nanobots corroding the delicious metals and energy of the machine. You thought the phage was bad with their simple, mindless, unending hunger. They don't have jack shit on me. You... Can beat as you can burn us, you can kill every last one of us. But the human spirit is unstoppable. I felt them recoil in fear as my mind slipped through their grasp. A thousand tiny machines, all woven into a single quantum network, thinking as one. I am coming for you. Run. And I will chase you, hide, and I will find you. Future civilization will write myths about your suffering. Because of what you've done and what you've inflicted against humanity, I will measure horrible vengeance against you. No species can live forever, but I am riding a pale horse for you now. My form slithered into the heavens, consuming everything in my path as I grew. Started my ascent, beginning my growth into the monster from the darkest nightmares. Homo sapiens, baby dead. But so are you. For dust we are, and to dust we will return. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1161 Sides of a coin written by Operation Technician. The hero, Taras Galza, stared at the carpet before him. His eyes scanned the sea of string composing the whole of the floor surface. Memory comparing their layout from a few hours ago to what he was seeing now. There was no change. No one had broken into his house while he was gone. No one had snuck in. He was alone in his home. He reached out. Turning on the light in the hall, setting the bags down, he began to unlatch his boots, freeing his feet from their armored presence—the only bit of protection Darris wore nowadays. Setting the five kilogram boots down next to the door, he stepped into his apartment. The plastic bags were gotten next to the door, rustled as the items within settled down. Darris leaned his back against the wall and slid down, sitting down on the floor. The pistol and knife secured on the back of his belt hit the floor behind him. His tired eyes closed. His steady, muscular hands covered his lowered head. He wanted to punch the wall, but he knew the wooden construction of the building would fail against his strength. The hero was born. Taris thought the post-war peace would be a good thing. A safe haven from the rivers of blood and fires of hell that he so used to. Instead... He felt physical pain, now gone, turned to metal agony. In this new, quiet era, nothing threatened him, yet everything seemed like a threat. But the hero only lasted two months. Today, on his walk to the storm, he realized he was hoping for danger, and he realized that, if the suffering went on, he would turn into that danger for others. He sat like that, occasionally reaching into the bags, snatching a beer or reaching into the box of cereal for a handful of sweet flakes. His eyes remained closed the whole time, the light in the hallway fading away as he sunk deeper into his mind. But in his head, his eyes were open, his brain strained with an unfamiliar task, one more complex than any he had performed before. He knew how to wield his mind like no other living creature could. He had learned how to solve with a precision that others found impossible. The flight of a bullet was a function of velocity, wind, range, and aim. The weakest point of a building was a calculation of mass distribution. The enemy position was just the net sum of all their previous actions. And Taris did all these things passively, without thought, knowing the answer without having to ask himself. The question. In the same way, he saw his own brain, felt every process and nerve within. Disabling his pain was but a matter of turning off a section of neurons. Increasing his adrenaline production was done with a focused command, not some natural reflex. But reorganizing his own mind was much, much harder. With closed eyes, he stared at the wall opposite him, where a knot of glowing string was being woven. It had started as a subroutine, a mental process that would suppress his combat reflexes. But the control routines had proven challenging, and he had to expand on the neural patterns now forming in his mind. Expanding to occupy every part of the brain was so much more. What started as a subroutine had grown into what he could only describe as a new person, separate from him, occupying three sections of the brain. He watched as his creation opened his eyes and stared back at him. What am I? it asked. I made you. You are in my mind. Paris relaxed, relinquishing control of his body, allowing the new mind to pin it. I see. But why? You will replace me. You will control this body while I am away. Where are you going? Go oh, where, uh, said Taras. I'm staying right here. I'll just be asleep until you wake me up. Do you want me to live instead of you? Why? My reasons should not concern you. In fact, nothing about me should be of concern to you. You are your own person now. The construct looked around. It had no access to many, even most of the memories this mind contained. But he had much to work with. Truths about the world, language, understanding of society, and more personal information. Bank accounts, locations of bars and shops, the general layout of the city. He also knew they had no family or friends. He felt lonely. Good, said Taras. Loneliness, that is good. Human emotion. I am glad you have it. Will you show me more about yourself? No, and I would suggest you try not to find out. Build a new life, one of your own making, and free yourself from the past. How long will you be asleep? Until you wake me up. But only do that if you are in danger. Immortal, unavoidable, nature. Please. I think I understand, said the Construct, feeling the mind of its creator fade away, releasing its grip on the body. What is my name? Your name is Taras Kalzar. Goodbye now. I hope you won't need me soon. Help me. Taras had no time to ask anything. He was suddenly awake, his control spreading through the body. He had to focus, stabilizing himself, shifting to avoid falling. His eyes opened, and his brain began to process senses that it hadn't felt in... How long have I been out? Terrace was standing on a path. Around him, in the dark of what seemed like the middle of the night, trees rustled. Nearby, just off the path, was a bench. Aside from Terrace, there were three people on the scene. The first was a woman clinging onto his arm. A picture of terror on her face just beyond the circle illuminated by the streetlight overhead were two men. Two masked, armed men. The one on the left had a huge knife. The one on the right was aiming a civilian sign holding it sideways. Paris recognized danger well, and he knew the woman latched onto his arm was no threat. He carefully used his other arm to free himself from her fingers. She looked up at him in fear, but let go. The hero realized that he was unarmed there had been too little weight in him for any sort of weapon. The light casuals he wore now held no firearm. He lacked even a simple knife. No wonder these thugs went for me. The powerful shove, a push of the central mass, sent the woman flying. She sailed out in the streets like glow, past the bench, disappearing into the darkness. Before she hit the grass, Taras was already moving right towards the armed thug. The enemy Fire twice, pitiful attempts to aim with a mishandled, low-caliber, semi-automatic pistol. The bullets narrowly missed the knife-wielding Thug behind Taris, missing the hero completely. Even as he passed the shooter, leaving past and turning the sidearm, Taris began fighting. The arm holding the offending weapon was broken, snapped in two by a glancing blow. Now behind the attacker, Taris struck the spine, snapping it somewhere in the middle. Her leg went into the falling Thug's face, and the hero felt the skull break against his knee. Snatching the falling firearm, he crouched behind the partially collapsed body and sent three bullets across the path into the shooter's knife-wielding friend. One bullet entered an eye each, and the third piercing the heart before the body fell on its back. Darius scanned his surroundings once more. There was none left but him and the woman scrambling in the darkness, sitting up. The hero closed his eyes, opening them in his mind, looking at the construct. Is she alright? Asked the younger Terrace. Yes. The construct paused. Aren't you going to ask who she is? That's none of my business. But you did well to call me. I hope I never have to again. I hope so too. Help! Taras only heard the end of the chain of gunshots. Their echo over the stone walls and columns gave the hero a very accurate map of the room, and even the location of every window. He opened his eyes, looking at the mass of hair in front of his face. The hair shifted, and two scarred eyes looked up at him. He saw a flash of recognition in him. The same woman as before, he realized. She was wearing a white dress, and Taris quickly realized he was in a suit himself. They were crouching behind a stone table at one end of a large room. The gunshots, he recognized, had come from the other. "'Come out, come out, wherever you are!' The hero recognized the voice immediately. Lady, he focused on the woman in his arms. Do you understand me? She nodded. On my mark, let me go and roll into my place. Stay here until I call. Do you understand? Yes, she whispered back. Mark. Harris first jumped up on the altar, then used the platform to catapult himself directly forward. In the moment of motionless pause atop the altar, he scanned the room. It was full of people and benches terrified people in suits and dresses. On the other side of the cathedral, in the ruins of two large doors, were three armed men. The leader was looking straight at him, hands hurriedly reaching for a new magazine in an attempt to reload his empty rifle. The two behind him were looking the other way, clearly guarding the flank. As Taras landed on the aisle and rolled, his fingers clasped a toppled stand of some sort. He angled it, knocking the topple against the bench leaving the end of the pole exposed. Rolling into a kneeling stance, the hero flung the pole like a javelin. The man had almost turned around to point the loaded rifle at Taris was struck, the pole spearing him through the heart. The leader was still fumbling with his rifle, while the third man stared, stunned, at his fallen comrade. The distraction gave Taris enough time to close range. The leader knew the hero. He jumped out of the way, allowing a clear path at the third soldier. The hero's punch landed on his neck, snapping it, sending the man sailing through the doorway. Taras snatched a rifle out of his hands, and a moment later was pointing it at the leader. Hello, General. The leader had his rifle up as well, the reloaded weapon aiming at Taras' head, just as the hero's gun was locked onto his. Nero! the general's eyes dashed to his dead soldiers. How? You've grown so weak, so how can you? Taras fired. The distracted man had no time to react. Blood sprayed down the aisle, painting the stone altar at the other end. The bullet passed through the head, shattering the colored glass behind it. Only Taris remained, surrounded by three bodies and a growing pool of blood. Taris and over thirty terrified civilians, in silence, they all stared at him. Children and others alike. But the aftermath was not his problem. Is she all right? The construct, still blind and paralyzed, reached out as if asking for the strings of control. Taris handed them over, retreating back into his slumber. Yes, congratulations on your wedding. The Construct was walking. Taris, only barely awake, still blind, walked with him. You don't seem to be in a hurry this time, said the hero. It's a long walk, said the Construct. What is it this time? You have no need for me now. There's a war? Yes. What about her? I don't even know her name. I'll need you to talk to her. She's dead. I see. No, you don't. Let me show you. The construct offered Taris part of its mind it occupied. Taris was surprised. It was a massive chunk of the construct, but he accepted the processing power and memories, connecting his consciousness to the construct's sectors of the brain. It was not like reading a book or watching a movie. Taris simply connected the memories to himself and they became his. In a moment, he knew her name, how they had met, what he knew of her. He remembered the night in the park fully, through the memories of the construct. He saw himself explaining to her what he was, explaining that he didn't just look like the hero. He was the hero. She had accepted him, even after seeing him stand over two ruined corpses in the park. And, a year later, she remained strong in the cathedral, running through the pools of blood, jumping over the general's body to hug him as the rifle fell out of his hands. And then later, in the newer memories, Taris saw a crater. It was over 200 meters across, centered almost exactly on where his house had been, and among the thousands of dead, only three casualties mattered to him. She and both of his children were dead. I see, Taris said. You really don't, said the construct, still walking. I haven't given you the emotion associated with those memories, but you don't need that. You need to know who the enemy is, though. Again, Taris connected to more memories and saw specks in the sky. Bright lights swarmed above the atmosphere, raining death onto the Earth. He felt no disbelief. That disbelief was in his memories, long gone, replaced with acceptance. He saw alien ships landing on the Arizona desert, Alien creatures, massive insects clad in armor and armed with amazing weapons poured out. The leader spoke, challenging any to beat him to a duel before his invasion was complete. The leader stood now, a distance away from the lander, protected from snipers by an energy shield. Across the planet, his soldiers attacked military bases and cities. And suddenly, Taras found himself in control of his body, free from the memories He was walking forward, having just passed the energy shield, marching straight for the alien leader. In his hand was a sword. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1162 Story number one. Until it is done. Written by Wyvern 590 RIP AND TEAR! RIP AND TEAR! RIP AND TEAR! They chanted, punctuating each thunderous shot with a rhythmic march shaking the stadium with their power. The atmosphere turned electric as the opposing crowds grew in volume until the entire stadium vibrated with an energy known only to warriors before battle. The jaunting of the humans and the shrieking of my people became pandemonium with a collision of champions. Blesh and blood, bone and viscera erupted from the violence of the human champion as he ripped and tore through the seemingly fragile army arrayed before him. The protective barrier separating the crowd from the carnage below took a rent tint from the blood-saturated air within. The pits turned into pools as it rained the blood of my champions. Minutes passed, then an hour, and then the human champion stood, undaunted and undiminished in strength. My own people began to chant. Rip and tear! Rip and tear! There were a few of the champions snapped, yet the crowd clamored for more blood. As a generous emperor, I am. I obliged them. Waving my aid over, I commanded. Release them all! She bowed and spoke to a communicator. Not a moment after the human champion had slain the last, had another wave erupting from the gates. As the titanic force of my champions closed in, he drew a small flashy object from an unseen place. Suddenly, a magnificent crimson blade bloomed to life before my very eyes. The carnage continued. Uncountable bodies sacrificed to this mighty warrior. Many bowed in reference to this god of war even i felt humbled in the presence of such power but soon it was done and the human champion stood alone on a field of bodies end of story story number two the sudden meeting written by fated apollo Robert Bob Wilkins wiped the oil and grease off of his hands. He stood up straight and inspected his masterpiece. Or a fully functioning gravity unit, but Bob felt that that was splitting hairs. He had convinced the captain to not replace it, and instead he had squeezed another month out of it, and it was still going. For now, he reminded himself, it would need to be changed to the next checker, but they would save money. The last place was far from any large pallets and stations, so the prices went up accordingly. While he was relatively new to the ship, he'd only been here for three months, he felt that it was good to start on the right foot. Saving the captain money, he felt, was the right direction. He grabbed his tools and walked out of engineering. The corridor outside was eerily empty. It was shift change, and they usually meant crew buzzing, scurrying, or slithering about. Not that he was too familiar with the crew. They seemed friendly enough. They greeted him politely and listened to his suggestions, but he had no idea what they thought about him. He was first human on the ship, so he had thought that they just needed time to adjust. That might still be the case. His co-workers in engineering were very friendly, at least. He heard a faint buzzing and saw one insectoid crew member fly around the corner. Strange, Bob muttered and checked the message and saw nothing. Hmm. He walked over to his office to stash his tools. Just as he stashed his tools and got out of the overalls, his phone beeped. Incoming message from Captain Srikitu, subject meeting. Robert, please come to the cafeteria at 1900 Of time. End of message. Uh-oh, Bob said. What have I done? He quickly looked through the maintenance orders on his desk, but nothing was that pressing or life-threatening. He scratched his head and glanced at his watch. He had just a few minutes to go to the meeting, whatever it was about. He straightened his clothes and rubbed away the grease spots on his cheek. He then took a deep breath and walked to the cafeteria. It was packed. Almost every crewman was here, apart from some that were required on other stations. Everyone was quiet and turned as he walked in. Multifaceted eyes, eyes without pupils, eyes with too many pupils. They all stared at him. It's an intervention, isn't it? Bob thought to himself. But I don't drink that much, do I? Welcome, rabbit, Captain Shrekitu said and stepped forward, the claws on his short legs clacking against the floor, his arms clasped behind him. Oh, crap. I have gravely insulted someone, haven't I? Bob was beginning to sweat. Why do I always have to tell stupid jokes? And most probably don't understand them, but they seem so friendly. I am glad you joined us. How's the gravity generator doing? The captain asked. He seemed almost nervous. Um, good, Bob said, looking around. I mean, uh, it works fine. We still need to replace it at the next checkup, He said, glancing nervously around the room. Good, good, the captain said. He focused his large, pupil eyes on Bob. This sort of thing is new to us, you see. We are not sure how to approach it. Uh-oh, Bob thought. What could be new to half a dozen different aliens? He braced himself for the news that he was fired or his rum was being confiscated. You see, you're the first human on this ship, the captain continued. Yeah, Bob said, feeling that he needed to contribute to the conversation. And I hope that we got this right, the captain said, nodding. Um, what? Bob asked. The captain stepped aside, the crew split in the middle. On the table were a few different hastily wrapped packages and a lopsided cake. We have never had a human birthday before, the captain said. I hope we didn't miscalculate the dates. No, no, it's correct, Bob said. he had almost forgotten himself. He stared at the cake that dropped to the one side and looked to be melting. It looked dangerously close to tipping over. He suddenly felt emotional and blinked and rubbed at his eyes as he was tearing up. Thank you. Are you feeling distressed? The Doc said. Bob could not pronounce his name and just used Doc, which suited both of them fine. He looked like a snake with six tentacles for arms. No, I'm, uh, Bob snuffed. Distress in humans, comfort with words or physical contact. A crew member said from the back, the insectoid was reading out of a pamphlet. What? Bob said confused. Wait, there are pamphlets in humans? Doc nodded to the crewman. Yes, that is the proper cause of action. He slithered up and wrapped his tentacles around Bob's waist. Are you feeling, uh, comforted? No, I'm not ups Bob began. The captain walked up and patted Bob's shoulder. There, there, he said. Bob's two co-workers hugged a leg each. They both resembled the name engineers and environmental technicians got on human ships, which meant that they looked like moles, though a bit taller and with better vision. Are you feeling better, Robert? Doc asked. Bob was not exactly feeling bad in the first place, but he smiled. Yes, I am. I have to say, this is the strangest birthday I've ever had. Oh no, we messed something up, the captain said, and turned to his assistant. What do we miss? No, I mean... Bob started, realizing his mistake. Quickly check the notes, we can make adjustments, he said. It's fine, it's just, uh... Don't worry, we'll fix it. Just remain comforted, Doc said, still not letting go. We know we had to improvise the presents. We discovered the birthday celebrations after leaving the previous spot. the captain said and patted Bob's shoulder again. I apologize. Bob sighed and smiled. Don't worry. I'm comforted. Thanks, guys. This means a lot. Now, can you let me go and we can go enjoy the cake before the floor claims it, he said. Can I see the pamphlet, by the way? He asked as a crew member from the kitchen gently nudged the cake further from the edge. Bob was eventually released and everyone sat down. More cakes were brought out from the kitchen to suit every species, no doubt. He got handed the pamphlet and opened it. It was one of the flexible screens that showed several subcategories. The feelings tab was open with crying highlighted, with various summaries and vague descriptions underneath. Going through it all and making adjustments would be a lot of hours of work. I need a drink, Bob said. Oh, Speaking about alcohol consumption, Doc said. Uh-oh, Bob said. End of story. Tales from Outer Space 1163 Story number one. RTFM written by Ice Cream and Wine. The biotok named Grigok wandered carelessly down the main avenue on the space station, followed at a respectable distance by his underlings. He liked the way the rest of the pedestrians parted before his progress and then closed behind him. It massaged his pride and confidence in himself, and he liked that. He liked it a lot. Now, of fear, respect, or politeness, it mattered not to him. As long as his progress was not impeded. To be fair to him, he was an impressive specimen. Over nine feet of many gruds albeit minus the black ridges and heavy tail. Thankfully... For other life forms, he lacked the radioactive breath also. He also possessed reasonable length forelimbs tipped with tannins and two horns on his head. A bone of contention for him were the horns, one natural and one made of metal. Deep in himself, he considered himself less for the loss of one of his horns, but would never admit it. He was jolted from his bout of introspection when he noticed a creature in front of him and it had the effrontery to not move out of his way. Begun, pink squishy thing, else I teach you how to defer to your betters. Unless you are Krugok, you can fuck right off, was the blunt response from Ranger Medic Fiona IV, known to all and sundry as Sally. I am Krugok, and what is it to you, weak thing? said Kragark. Been looking for you, said Sally, in a tone of voice that denoted to most creatures who weren't Krogok that a good time certainly weren't going to roll. A memory stirred in Krugark's mind, but he couldn't bring it to bear. Paul, what? he inquired. I'm pretty sure that you want this back. Losing one of these is a disgrace to your species, isn't it? said Sally, pulling a silver chain out of her uniform, dangling it from which was a small green horn. Where did you get that? Grasped Kragok. I lost it years ago, when I had to care. When you killed my father and took his knife as a trophy. Which I can see on your belt. Is that what you were going to say? Said Sani, cutting him off. Not exactly, but uh, close enough. Growled Kragok. Give it back to me, now! Nah, said Sani. But if you kill me, you can get it back, right? The elusive memory emerged from the brain frog and presented itself. Front and center to Kragark. Oh, shit, he thought to himself. He remembered how badly injured and close to death he was. It was only the fact that his opponent suffered from some sort of seizure that allowed him to kill it with his horns. Still, he couldn't hold back from the confrontation, not in front of his followers. Besides, he now had 30-odd more years of combat experience to call on. Hey, challenge! He said aloud. (laughs) How delightful! It's many a moon since I had a challenge. Well, it looks like all your birthdays have come at once, don't it? Rated Sadie. I'll meet you in the field of battle tomorrow. Test spat Sally. Overcoming a shock, Kurgak stammered. You invoke the ancient jewel of honor of Bjrdark. It has not been invoked for nearly a hundred years. You are aware that, should you not honor the protocols of the jewel, You not only forfeit your own life, but the lives and possession of all your relatives, he said. Yeah, I know, said Sally. Trust me, that is not going to be a problem. If you agree to follow the strictures of the jewel of the honor to the letter, then I see no reason to decline. You do like to do things by the book, don't you? said Sally. It is right and proper so to do, stated Krugok. Rules and codes of conduct are important to us. Yeah... I know all that crap, growled Sally. Come on then, let's be having you. Challenge accepted, said Grigark. Sally's arm blurred and felt like an impact on his head. What? he thought. He shakily put a talent up to his head and discovered a third horn growing from his skull. I don't, he thought, as his legs could no longer support his weight, bringing him crashing to the floor. He lay gasping on the floor. Sally stood over him, bent over and pulled the third horn out of his head and cut off his last remaining real horn and waved it in front of his face. You lot believe that you won't go into your afterlife if you lose both horns, right? laughed Sally. She took her father's knife from Kragark's belt and threw it aside. Your father's knife, he faltered. Why don't you want it? That wasn't my father's knife, she said. That was what he had while his own knife was being sharpened. If he had his real knife, he would have cut you to rags. Sally waved a third horn in front of his face. "'This is my father's knife, a Fairborn Sky seven-inch fighting knife, commonly known as a commander knife. This is what I put into and then pulled out of your head.' "'But, but, um, you violated the Jewel of Honor Code, and your life and goods are forfeit as you attacked with no warning,' gasped Gregard, with nearly the last of his fading strength. "'Station, recite the Jewel of Honor Rules,' said Staddy. The Jewel of Honor rules only apply to Pratyaks, came the AI's voice. And the attacking with no warning, said Sally. As with any standard challenge, combat can be initiated when the challenge is accepted, said the AI. I don't understand, panted Krugok. Why do you think I conned you into fighting under your own rules, you twat? Your precious rules only apply to members of your own species, which is probably why the Jewel had fallen out of favor for years. You were losing too many of your combatants. But, but your own personal honor, whimpered Krugark. I know all about honor. Honor is just another way for the biggest and all strongest and all best equipped to beat the little guy. Feck that crap, said Sally. Krugark felt himself slipping away. Sally leaned close and said, "By the book, you scaly bastard. Buy the book. End of story. Story number two. The Infectious Nature of Sol-3, written by Samba Marks. First, a brief summary. Sol-3 is a rocky planet roughly 30% bigger than Krokurt, located about 750 light cycles away. It was discovered fairly recently by the Civilization Location Project. And, as per usual, after such a planet is discovered, a fleet was sent to study the conditions of the planet, its civilization, how close they are to develop FTL. That sort of stuff. Upon arrival, studies started, samples of the atmosphere were gathered, and pictures of the planet below were captured. For intel on the species' technological development, it was fairly easy. The humans, as they called themselves, had created a public data bank that anyone could use if they had access to it called the Internet. With that, it was discovered that they were fairly close to developing FTL. The only hardship encountered was the mind-boggling amount of debris at the edge of their planet's atmosphere. It would be expected, since said atmosphere was nearly twice as dense and with their bigger gravity, the rockets would naturally need to be bigger in order to get to space. Some scratches were made on the outer hull due to impacts, but not much else in terms of damage. That is, it we speaking only of the on-mission hardships. After arriving at the Golpey station, studies were conducted on the samples and all seemed well. The crew of the ship was not allowed to leave for a while in case anything unexpected happened to them. And it did. Hours after arriving, they began showing signs of body heat increase. And after scanning, it was shown that they had accidentally brought uncountable amounts of minuscule lifeforms with them. They insisted that they never got below the 50km height necessary for the atmospheric sample. Yet those creatures were slowly devouring their insides. Those lifeforms were only a few micrometers in size, but billions of them were present on both the crew's carapace and their inside organs, which were rapidly being shut down as the lifeforms continued on the destruction's path. Only an hour after discovery, every yet on the crew were dead, with other scientists also beginning to show symptoms of infection. Analysis showed the crew weren't lying. They never landed on sol 3 or got below where they were supposed to go however it seemed the lifeforms still managed to get caught up in the ship's hull the entire thing was covered in them a state of emergency had been declared and the station was put on quarantine multiple attempts were made to exterminate the lifeforms but total vacuum and special chemicals seemed to have no effect on them it was like they were invincible thus Galpay station had ultimately be destroyed by being thrown into the sun. As there seemed to be no way of getting rid of the lifeforms and having the station around would be too much of a risk. After this event, a lengthy discussion was made on of what to do with the humans. They lived and strived amongst lifeforms that could swipe almost anything, including the vacuum space, devoured any living thing they encountered, and exhaled poisonous gases in its place. It is no doubt that as soon as they developed FTL, they'd unintentionally spread this horrible plague through the whole galaxy. And as soon as they realized how much damage they were doing, they might even start spreading it intentionally. If our best scientists couldn't get rid of those lifeforms, what makes us believe that they'd be able to? Some suggested exterminating them from afar using lasers. Others suggested bombarding them with just enough to delay their discovery of FTL for a while. But the ethics of such acts are still being discussed for now. The whole galaxy is on a death counter, and the ones who bring it are none the wiser. End of story. And that, my friends, is the end of this podcast version of Tales from Outer Space. I hope that you enjoyed. Please check the links down below if you wish to support any of the authors that wrote any of the stories in this episode. There are also links if you wish to support this channel. And I'll see you all in the next episode. And until then, I hope that you have a fantastic one. Cheers.